It don't matter what I try I just can't win and I don't know why There's a fork in every road I pick the wrong one and then I go American loser, yes I am Disenfranchised from everything well, I fall up and I fall down I was born. Welcome back to the podcast that puts the spotlight firmly on second place, guys. Here's your weekly edition of American Loser. Uh, as always, live from a shared universe podcast studio. We probably did it illegally, but I don't know. I mean, Phil Murphy, you want to come down here? You want to be a guest on the show or a topic on the show? It's your choice. All right, <laughs> sir. But uh, we're here, Eatontown, New Jersey. Mike and Ming take great care of us, as always. Behind the ones and twos, who could it be other than? The Big Kahuna. How are you, pal? I'm good, man. How you doing? It's good to be here. We're in the other um, studio within the studio, if you will. Yeah, we're in uh, room B. Yeah, that's how much money I'm making, Mike and Ming, is that we have multiple rooms on multiple levels now. <laughs> All right. So. Oh, so you bought our old space. I knew it. You know it. That's <laughs> a, when you walk in there, it's just a room full of L. McPherson posters. You'll know it was me, guys. <laughs> and I'm going to have throwaway money someday. But I'm actually not. Uh, of course, if you guys are regular listeners of the show, you know what we're doing here. But uh, in case you're not, if this is your first episode with us welcome to american loser podcast uh what we do is it's me and my delph of a dad say hi larry hey hi larry That's a, <laughs> <laughs> who went in studio um uh is here to rustle papers do research and help me cover and tell the stories of the biggest losers in american history um this has been a passion project ours for a while now we're actually available up on patreon if you like the show and you're a regular listener you already know about that if you're one of our founding losers we do have something cool coming for you um but uh, for just five bucks a month you can go on to the Patreon and get a bonus episode of this very show. So we'll continue to do a free weekly one every Tuesday. But if you want to help us out with our, you know, covering our production costs, which I got to say, our loyal fans have been pretty cool about. It's been fun. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, Kahuna doesn't come cheap, but I mean, no. we still, we still got to pay the bill, you know. Pay hey, the man, truth. you pay for this face. <laughs> it's perfect for radio. That's what I was going to say. That's why we're on radio. Well, we got a kick-ass, uh, we got a kick-ass thing going here. So the Patreon was fun. Our first episode uh, was the Rosenbergs for Patreon exclusive, which is uh, you want to get on that now because there's a huge HBO documentary coming out that involves them. So if you want to be ahead of the curve and be able to outsmart HBO, um, then you want to listen to this very show. All right. Um, that also being said, we have the next one coming up and we're going to cover uh, a topic that is, it's pretty important. It's always important, but every time there's a witch hunt or some sort of a, uh, uh, nonsense going on in the news, you hear a term called McCarthyism get thrown around and no one ever knows the story of the guy behind the name, right? So LP, that's going to be our next topic for Patreon. Okay. I'll start the research. <laughs> so, if, if you're digging the show, yeah. uh, well, no, I was going to say we've already started that, but, uh, he's an interesting character and uh, most definitely so it's great too because whenever we we actually have to do the research for the show i'm about to introduce our guest in a second who's a regular listener one of my oldest friends honestly um so i'm excited to have him on here today but uh you guys don't understand how frustrating it is for my father when he and i say we're going to do an episode on this topic then something comes up and i have to pivot and make the move and then you walk in and you just hear him go all right, Kev. And you just see, like hear him drop 16 pages of printouts from different websites. <laughs> like, I guess this research will be on hold. So, But uh, 
yeah, that's uh, we're advertising now on the Patreon. Check us out, American Loser Podcast on Patreon for just five bucks a month. That's all we're asking. If you want to give more, you're more than welcome to. But five it's bucks gets you access. People, you get some dope stuff. <laughs> you do get. To, we actually have some merch shit coming too, which is going to be awesome. I've been working with a company on that. We even got merch soon. We this got is crazy. Uh, we got more production stuff coming in too. We're going to talk about after the show here. It's an exciting time, guys. So if you want to help us out, get it on the ground floor. Uh, it, it allows me to keep doing the weekly show for free. So if you find another listener of the show and you are a Patreon member and they are not, bully them. Okay? That's I want right, you to get right. in their face. We encourage <laughs> bullying right. here on American Loser. Right. 110%. Arm twist. twist. So uh, without further ado, I want to go ahead and move in there. Again, that's the Patreon is just for five bucks. That's the cost of uh, one large cold brew from Dunkin' Donuts a month. And I'll give you a free show on top of the uh, – four free shows on top of the one, the bonus one where we get to dive into the, uh, the deeper topics. So um, – LP used to have to drive me around. You had this shitty old Mercury Villager that you took the back seats out of because you could carry sheetrock. Well, kids will do that shit to you, you know. That uh, I like, thought we were. You got to have a vehicle. You got to deal with kids. You got to still make a couple of extra bucks. So, if you can buy one vehicle, what's it going to be? Well, a minivan. Minivan. <laughs> yep. It works. It was great. It holds kids and it also holds uh, building materials. I'm so. almost certain that our guest today has ridden in the back of that absolute death trap known as your Mercury Villager. Because <laughs> what he would do, Greg, is he would take the seats out of the back of it so he could fit sheetrock and stuff. And then sometimes forget to put them back in until we were already in the car. Mm. So just imagine rolling around in the back seat of a... And so also his radio didn't work, so he had a, a, a boombox that would play CDs. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> Our guest today is one of the guys who, uh, uh, at an early age, uh, with me, uh, made, um, we got obsessed with uh, movies, Hollywood shit, everything yes, like that, and uh, bonded and started making uh, our own uh, little mafia movies back at the house. We made mob movies, uh, cop movies, anything, dude. Everything and, in between. Absolutely. And uh, so today's guest is, it, this guy actually, I, I quit fucking around with that stuff after high school. I was like, I better join the Navy and get my act together because I dicked around in high school too much. This guy goes the opposite direction. Uh, film school graduate, owner of his own small company right now, working in production. There's awesome photos of him on his Instagram. It's at GM Standle, right? Yes, sir. Uh, check him out. Owns his own company. He's working badass uh, stuff. There's always shots of you on set places. You've gone on these weird hidden locations in Jersey sometimes, like castles or abandoned railways and stuff. But yeah. You live in a great life. Greg Standle, by the way. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah. I, uh, someone advised me a while back to always take behind the scenes videos and pictures because, you know, prospects like to see that. And it's just, you know, it's cool to document that. So I've been into it for a couple of years now, okay. just taking pictures. Quality follow to begin with and also quality friend. Uh, I'm very excited to have you here. We got to ride down together and shoot the shit a little bit. That was nice. Um, so, you know, what we do on the show. We talk Jersey a little bit. You've listened to the show before, mm -hmm. um, but uh, we're talking one of the arguably the greatest filmmaker of all time today amen so kahuna did you figure out who it is yet no i'm still like wait who were we talking about as soon as we say that you're going to know the name but you're not going to know all of his weird story because i knew a lot about the guy and i didn't know as much once we did the okay. research it was, it was heavy we're going to refer to him as the extra large master of his quote medium um <laughs> and he has one of the best quotes i've ever heard which we'll reference a couple times in the episode um so here's the quote of uh, from today's american loser who it's almost like one of those, this should be on his gravestone. That's how good of a quote this is to some of his life. Um, if you want a happy ending, that depends, of course, on where you stop the story. So think Truth. about that. Yeah. A little heavy, right, dude? Mm -hmm. That's for him. Insightful. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, that quote was none other than uh, Mr. Orson Welles, today's oh American Oh, my God. <laughs> Wait, we're talking about Orson Welles? You know it, brother. Okay. All right, all right, all right. Dude, he is... Uh, he- He's such a great name because everyone knows the name, right? Like, Greg, sure. you knew a little bit just uh, like, yeah. like off the top of your head because we're going to hit everything. So the top of my head, famous filmmaker and the hoax that he pulled off. It's and it's quite the hoax. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty oh impressive. <laughs> and um, we watched everything about his life. You, there's still interviews of him on YouTube you can watch when he was like, uh, I guess it was the Merv Griffin show. Well, he, was, he was all over the place. Yep. Yeah, he, he's got and then uh, gets up to like. You know you have a magnetic personality when you can be 400 pounds and still have, like, a Croatian model in love with you? That's <laughs> yeah, like, that sums up Orson Welles pretty well. He's got some Marlon Brando type shit to him, man. And the funniest thing we watched was his uh, his wine commercials in his later years because he's 400 pounds, so they, they shoot him sideways. You ever have, like, uh, someone show up who's just a shit show on, on, like, on the set of something you're working on, Greg? Physically? Both. <laughs> uh, physically, no, but yeah, I've had people who didn't have their act together, or don't know their lines, or difficult to get what you need out of them. It's the yeah. worst. So <laughs> sorry. <laughs> it's tough because you got to dance around, not hurting their feelings, but also getting what you need. Well, that's where the I mean, because our our friend of the show and uh, also Joe Fernandez has a comedy album out called Impossible Human, available on iTunes. Check that one out, guys. Um, but uh, he came in and shot that sizzle reel for us, and uh, I consider myself I'm a stand up comic. Yeah, I'm not embarrassed to talk in front of crowds. Um, but then when they, they tell you to stare into your dad's eyes and say a line you wrote on a Word document, <laughs> we both got a little fucked up. Right, right. That, we yeah. were getting a little right, Let's go for another take on that one. <laughs> it was great, too. Once my father figured out he could say, let's try another, that's all it turned into. Where he'd be halfway through the line. He goes, well, Kev, how about fuck this? Let's do another. <laughs> <laughs> got to finish the take at least. <laughs> well, Orson Welles, in, in his late years, he gets made fun of all the time by these sketch groups and stuff because he, he was a... a in, the ambassador for a wine, if you will. And it's the commercial. The outtakes of the commercial are so funny because he's clearly drunk, right? <laughs> he's 400 pounds, so they're shooting him from the side. And then he doesn't know the lines. So the other actors are sitting there like, I'm not correcting Orson Welles right now. <laughs> but yeah. but the, like one of the lines is like, Orson Welles is just staring into the camera. All right, and action. And fat Orson Welles is staring into the camera. He goes, isn't this guy supposed to do something? <laughs> <laughs> So he gets mocked for that, but the guy is potentially the most brilliant filmmaker of all time. Um, yeah, and Hawaiian commercials are so much after. I mean, his, what, second, third, fourth career? I mean, he, this guy just kept on resurrecting himself. Um, he's a bad penny, for yeah. sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, we got to cover him quick here. On av- And by the way, it's quick hits on a lot of this stuff, because his life's interesting, but we're going to move it at a, 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 a pace that the audience can appreciate, because... Uh, we got people telling us, like, listen, I used to listen to the show on my commute. I don't have a commute anymore. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. so that's hurting us. So you're telling me this now, Kevin, with 16 pages of notes here. You have 16, I have seven. So we're going to meet somewhere in the middle. Um, it's, oh, <laughs> um, we'll keep it under the eight-hour marathon. Then. It's the truth. It's, um, But I think it's going to be a fun one. And, uh, Greg, I'm going to throw to you for a couple times. You're actually going to uh, – the cinematography aspect of it, I'm, I'm really interested to know. Because both you and Kahuna are guys who work in the business – so you guys have more knowledge than us two jamokes on this one. Um, <laughs> but uh, I'm going to say this one. We often come across these figures in history where their true life exploits seem unreal. So we assume that uh, we read something wrong because Wikipedia every now and then likes to troll you by saying something like, uh, oh, he had a huge dick. <laughs> you know, um, just a random piece of information that you know is obviously false, but then you have to be like, oh, crap, yeah, or one it's not that, cited, so now i got to look yeah. and see if it's true. <laughs> or one that makes no sense. I remember reading Derek Jeter's Wikipedia once because 
I was trying to figure out how many career hits he had. And one of the sections was, Derek's like just a great person. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I was like, oh, which, which, uh, what gift basket did you just receive? <laughs> what was the first thing you watched with Orson Welles in it? Do you remember? Uh, so we studied his masterpiece in high school. Um, and that's when I got really interested in his backstory. There's a little loose reception here. There's Jersey connections. Yeah. Um, but we all know this one thing is that the big Jersey connection that Greg kind of mentioned earlier is going to come in in a second. But um, this guy's life, let's just go off the, the you know, on uh, uh, the biography, there's the biography before the, the in-depth part. That alone was probably an episode's worth of information. Uh, this guy was friends with FDR, Winston Churchill, apparently sat down to a, a very young Hitler back in Austria, well, knew, uh, thought he was friends with, and then got screwed over by Nelson Rockefeller, married Rita Hayworth, who is, I mean, I don't know who you want to compare yeah, her was, to. She was the hottie of the time, for sure. She <laughs> was, your Alan McPherson poster was uh, Rita Hayworth back in the day. Understood. All right. Did she also do a swimsuit illustrated kind of a thing? Uh, or? Yeah, she was uh, She was the pinup girl of the uh, of just about every GI of World War II. So. Fair enough. Well, he, uh, he was definitely hanging out with the upper crust back then. He knew some people. Yeah. Um, and it's weird, too, because he always needed money still. So you'd think that he's part of the upper echelon, but then he was... At, like, those wine commercials were done because he needed to fund his next brilliant project no one was going to watch. Um, <laughs> but they say geniuses aren't appreciated in their own time, which is why this will be a hit podcast in <laughs> the next right. millennium. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this Sorry. is just gold for someone when they stumble <laughs> Somebody's upon Somebody's got a volunteer to die here. That's <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's. Uh, I won't say who it's going to be. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, this guy also made the most important movie of all time. And this podcast is being recorded in 2020, right? But had this been recorded any moment after this movie came out, it still would have been considered the most important movie of all time. So did he doom himself? Is he a bullshit artist or is he a savant? I mean, what is he? Is he an overbearing asshole? Is he a genius? Turns out it's all, all of the above. above. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we'll hop into his early life here, which is still interesting, but not the meat of the story. Um, born on May 6, 1915 in Kenosha, Wisconsin. So Kenosha likes to brag about old Orson Welles. He didn't spend much time there, really. But uh, uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin, Orson was the son of Richard, an inventor, and Beatrice, a former suffragette actress and musician. Cahoon, do you know what a suffragette is, right? Uh, yeah, I, if you don't, it's okay. I, I, it's such a weird term. It's like, I, I, it's not someone, uh, no, I'm just going to say no. I ain't going to hold you it's up, okay. I'm not trying to. I feel so bad. It's all, it's like, it's all good. Cause I have like an image of it, but I don't know how to describe what it, what it means or is. Yeah. If, it's, it's, it's a weird bottom line is that it was a, the early women's rights type groups. Okay. So, yeah. Uh, wanting to have the right to vote, stuff like that. But, um. Suffragette is just such a weird like they should have sat down in a meeting and come up with a better name for it or something like we don't have anything that doesn't have the word suffer in it um, apparently not but she was ahead of her time this chick right a uh, pretty revolutionary girl mm -hmm. um, she was uh, the, the marriage wasn't really too too strong it appeared um, he had uh, one older brother that uh, was committed to uh, an insane asylum uh, you know good kind of that's what you did back in those days you know what I mean um, we've tried it with my sister, Carrie. She just keeps coming back. We don't know how, um, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> by the way, my sister, Carrie will be out on parole soon and back on the show. <laughs> Excited about that part. <laughs> She's getting released. <laughs> yep. It's, uh, it's going to be a, a high noon Gary Cooper type vibe here soon. <laughs> 
the meanest girl in New Jersey, my sister Carrie. It's um, a shame Orson can't direct that. That's <laughs> <laughs> topical. You see that? Yeah, this is, I told you it was right money there. as a He's guest. Right <laughs> so uh, Orson loved his mother, was very close with her. Um, he uh, he uh, actually would notice that the mother would sometimes play games. She'd very f- be like overly flirtatious, you know, to get uh, like a favor or, or invited to a, like a high society gathering. So Orson figured out ways of manipulating people and telling them what they wanted to hear. Hmm. And um, Greg, you're a single guy, right? So at some point you've had to sit down and do the math between what's it going to cost to take a nice girl out for dinner or just to get a whore off Craigslist. Also, he um, was just mastering the art of many. Tinder before <laughs> Tinder was actually a thing. It, uh, t- ooh, Tinder for Orson That's an Wells. art that can't be mastered, but I could be wrong about that. <laughs> <laughs> Tinder for Orson Welles would be weird because as a boy, he was heavy. And then in his uh, adult life, uh, early on, he was a, a tall, handsome guy with a, a deep, booming voice. And then upon his deathbed, I'm pretty sure... To borrow a line from Dom DeLuise's Fatso, they had to bury him in a piano case. (laughs) (laughs) He was a big boy towards the end. Oh, man. But uh, that'd be a hell of a tender day when Orson shows up using Citizen Kane photos and then shows up looking like a character played by Farley. (laughs) Um, There's no doubt. (laughs) They talked about it. Famous chefs used to prepare food for him, and they were just like, you'd literally see the guy almost experience a borderline, for lack of a better term, orgasm from eating. Oh, my God. He he had a, a palate for it. Um, but, uh, so Orson's mother is very smart. She values good conversation. And they said as a baby, um, if you wanted to stay out of the nursery where Orson was like confined and bored, it was almost like a Muppet babies thing, right? (laughs) Where he's, uh, he, he doesn't want to go to the nursery. He wants to be hanging out with the adults where the action's at. So what you had to do is be interesting to your mother. Did you make that reference just for me? Because he has not one, but two Muppet connections. Every Muppet reference will always be for you. Because that's how I watched him for the first time. He was the guy who signed the Muppets Rich and Famous contract. Holy shit, you're right. I had forgotten about that. And he was uh, Unicron in the Transformers movie. So my, those were he my had two, a voice, man. Those were my two first exposures to Orson Welles. Thank you, Pop. That, that is it. <laughs> No, dude, that's hilarious, too, because I, I had forgotten because his life is so bizarre. You don't even know what's happening with him here. But, uh, Greg, when did you help? Because before we were friends, we, we became good friends in eighth grade. When were you and our, our, our mutual pal Joe Piskel dicking around with um, making movies on, uh, on like your dad's VCR tape recorder thing? I made my first movie June 10th, 1998. And I remember that because of the little date on the bottom. <laughs> so while you're filming, it's it's yeah, it's yeah. dating it. Yeah, so I've been into it for a long time. Dude, you did one, too, that I will always for uh, – I'll never um, forget, actually, because what you did was um, you – it was a family party or something like that, and you and Piskel were at it together, and mm-hmm. you guys just made the movie, but you used the catering hall that the family party was at as the scene. Party I, pooper. Dude, that was genius shit. So <laughs> Had a couple spinoffs of that, too. Did you really? Yeah, we made, we went we had a party at, a brown, at the Brownstone. <laughs> shots up in there, too. Uh, that, what was fun about that, too, is that uh, – so, like, a guy like Orson is figuring out his shit early on. How old were you when you made the first one? I remember you said the date. Ten. Ten? Yeah. Well, you got a little Orson Welles to you then, Greg. Um, at nine years old, and even younger, actually, he was already playing music at, like, a high level. And he could entertain, like, party guests with deep conversations and stuff. And, uh, unfortunately, uh, his mother, who Orson described as a classic and stunning beauty, uh, she died of hepatitis when Orson was nine. Hmm. So, Orson, who had then learned all of this, this Mozart level of music genius in order to be able to uh, stay out of the nursery, never played music again after his mother died. It was like a trick he learned. that The, the two were connected for him, so he bailed on it. 
Yeah, well, she would she would put him in front of company to perform, um, which mm-hmm. would get him, you know, <laughs> out of being shut out of everything, like locked away in his room type of a thing. That come down, Orson come down and, and uh, sing for the sing for the company or play the piano for the company. He was a multi talented guy, but uh, it was really by his mother's, uh, um, you know. A mandating kind of a thing that uh, you know you will perform on cue. Go. <laughs> so, so now he gets rid of music, which was his way of you know staying relevant and, and being the pride of his mother's uh, eye, if you will. How old was he at this point? Uh, well, when she died, he was nine. Uh, so uh, now he he then dumps music, right? Uh, but remains interesting as his mother taught him to be for the rest of his life. I, I think that's an understatement, yeah, yeah, right? There you go. <laughs> so. Uh, families, uh, got some money for a time because Orson's father invented this, uh, like bicycle horn or something like that. Hmm. Um, but his father was a booze bag, right? So, uh, as, as most of the American losers we cover, uh, uh, seem to have some, either them or someone very close to them is a, a bit, uh, a bit too deep in the drink, if you will. Into his cups. He was a, a booze bag. Smart guy though. You, you can't be an inventor if you're a shithead. That's kind of how that works. Um, but, uh, his father would take him around, uh, on these trips, like like young Orson Welles was going to Jamaica and the Bahamas and visiting like all these crazy. And keep in mind, he was born in 1915. This is, you know, uh, you're talking World War One is going on as a baby for him, and then he's seeing the rest of the world. And imagine what a different experience that is for. Again, we always say this pre-interstate highway America, where you typically lived and died without some sort of a great migration within 40 miles of where you were born. Right. Yeah. So, right. Greg and I would he's never have gotten out of way in New Jersey. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's seeing the world. He's um, with his, you know, dad uh, pulling him along, kind of a thing. Well, during the day, probably right, and then at yeah. night it was Orson pulling his drunk dad around right. because uh, he'd start hitting the bottle, and then they, that was the question they would ask: Who's taking care of who on this one? I need to go pick up my dad. I don't want him to go drunk and horse again. <laughs> so was it right after the mother passed away they started traveling around? Yeah, I think there were some travels early on too. But you got anything on that? No, that was that was pretty much what I came up with too. That you know, while uh, mom was still alive, mom was at home and, and could take care of the kid. But now that uh, mom's passed and dad still got to go on and try to make a living, that all right, you're gonna bring the kid with you. And I think eventually he was put into a boarding school, I believe. That, uh, he did, because the, the father, um, even before the father passed away, he realized he couldn't really take care of the kid. So they send him to uh, this very, he, he's living with a guy named Dr. Bernstein, too, that the, the father was uh, like rooming up with the guy where it was it was cheaper to split like a boarding room with mm-hmm. two people. So he was around in Chicago around this time. And I forget what part of Illinois it was, but that's where Orson kind of called home. I think it was like Jules, Jules something. Yeah, okay. Right. Look, look it up if you can. But um, uh, he winds up going to a school known as the Todd Seminary for Boys. All right. Now, you'd think that'd be shitty that your dad, mom's dead, dad's a booze bag and sends you to boarding school. Orson loved it. This shit like saved his life, man. Uh, it's kind of like the Navy for me, if you really think about it. <laughs> um, but uh, this is where we have to start offering our early disclosures. Greg, how often in working in your line of work, um, have you come across somebody who is completely full of shit? <laughs> you don't have to name names either. Yeah. I hate to say 80% of the time. Oh, <laughs> man, that's worse than I thought. I've had a lot of smoke blowing up my, my It's ass. bad. Yeah. Yeah, it's bad. Well, Kahuna, you too. How many times? Because that's why I was so happy to introduce you to Mark Riccadonna, because that's actually one of the good guys in this business. You know? Oh, <laughs> and, and, and Mark's never going to blow smoke up your ass. Sometimes he like the the idea isn't fathomable in the immediate future, but he's you know 
He's Mark's, like, it's there. Yeah. Like, we're going to try and do it regardless. Mark's a better guy than uh, everyone that poor Greg's had to deal with. I'd rather career. have that. I'd rather just, you know, straight shooter. Tell me how it we'll is. We'll introduce you. <laughs> oh, yeah, you guys would love each other, man. Um, Orson is one of these bullshit artists. And oh, I've, yeah, yeah. He's got what we're going to refer to from now on as a Calamity Jane quality. Yeah, for, but, like, it seems like he kind of bullshitted in the right way. He bullshitted up. Oh, absolutely. From, especially from here, because he's if he's a kid, and then at this when did uh, Citizen Kane come out? Forty one. Uh, I think it was. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, but so, so fail just up and just bullshit up until nineteen forty one, and he'll be so, fine. So he yeah, made but that I, when I think he was what, young. Yeah, he was very young. That's really impressive. I think he had the record for a long time of like one of the youngest film directors, and I think twenty five year old director. I think right. so. But imagine, imagine if if you take, don't tell mom the babysitter's dead. And you apply that to Orson Welles' life. He pulls off not not one movie, but probably three or four movies before he even gets the Citizen Kane job. So check out how full of shit this dude is. Yeah, but it's a, I think one of the things that you guys are all missing is that he might be uh, able to bullshit his way in, but he's also able to deliver the goods. So, I mean, he's he's bullshitting his way in that, like, I'm a rock star. I'm, I'm, I'm one of the greatest. But at the same time... Don't you know who I am? He, I'm Orson Welles. <laughs> once who? he gets in there, uh, I think early on, I mean, one of his early uh, teenage adventures is going off to Ireland. And We're not even dropped. there yet. All right, well... No problem. I, I'm going to throw to you for Ireland, trust me. Well, no, I don't have that much about it, but it was just one it's of the It's worth things. noting, though. Okay. Cause, yeah. Well, go ahead, then. Well, we have to just lay the quality out that this guy's got Calamity Jane stuff to him. Calamity Jane, if you didn't listen to that episode, one of my favorites. Go listen. Available on YouTube, by the way. Our only full episode available on YouTube. I, I tried to teach myself how to do it, and I failed. But the audio works. Um, <laughs> I'll help you, KP. I promise. A, <laughs> but uh, so Calamity would lie about herself because her reputation became like a, a, a you know armor for her. Orson Welles is lying about certain things because it either made him more interesting or uh, it helps him secure some of these jobs like my father was talking about. So uh, years later in TV interviews when he was around his 400-pound weight, um, he would make a remark that he was the descendant of Gideon Wells, who was Abe Lincoln's secretary of the Navy. So he's trying to say, like, oh, well, the family has a connection to Lincoln, you see. And I'm doing a terrible voice to him, but that's kind of... <laughs> really? He had, he had a good baritone voice, I felt. <laughs> Wait, is that baritone? I don't know. It's KP, I haven't even tried to imitate this motherfucker's voice. Don't do <laughs> it's it. Tough. It's, right. it's, it's tough. It's hard. Just go on. He's got a voice. <laughs> <Forget> <laughs> a... <laughs> but uh, apparently another thing that he liked to talk about was that while backpacking in Europe with a teacher of his who was a budding supporter of this new political party known as the Nazis before they really came to power, hmm. that uh, young Orson Welles sat down for lunch one day and happened to be sitting next to a guy who would go on to be uh, a little bit more infamous in uh, Adolf Hitler. And uh, Orson Welles' comment at the time was, he goes, uh, not a charismatic man, nothing interesting about him, unimpressive by all accounts. Now, is he saying that because... That's really what he felt as a young kid sitting next to Hitler. Or did he just want to shit on Hitler a little bit more? Right, right. <laughs> you know? A little bit of both. This was after it the It could fact, be, right? yeah. Right. Or is it just a good story to tell your friends at a party? Like, uh, you know, don't get me wrong. We've all we've all bullshitted about certain stuff. There was always times when you'd be like, oh, yeah, I hooked up with a girl this summer, and she lives in another town, and I'll never see her again. <laughs> I got a good one for you. Yeah, there was this kid I knew who was like, yeah, my dad was in PM Dawn. Like, he was, <laughs> 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 was a real sack of shit. Yeah. <laughs> oh, jeez. Well, you just set adrift on memory bliss already, Cohen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, inside humor for, uh, uh, pe for those people. Who know. The, That's right. Those in the know get it. Um <laughs> Well played. Well played. 
So uh, Orson proves his dislike for people in power, by the way, on a regular basis. It's not just Hitler that gets the, uh, the bad opinion from him. Uh, however, Orson is quickly recognized as a potential genius. School bored the shit out of him. He had already traveled around the world with his father. He was hanging out with the upper echelon society with his mother. And his new ward, Dr. Bernstein, uh, we mentioned earlier, is uh, going to go ahead and now set him off to this, uh, this beautiful uh, top-of-the-line avant-garde type thing. We're going to say avant-garde a lot today. That'll be the new word we teach you, Dad. Um, oh, I got that one. That's a <laughs> um, but uh, he goes to this, this brand-new school. Greg, you wanted to go into film. And oddly, you never got into the TV production classes in, uh, in high school, which I always that was confused. A mistake. I, a mistake or a smart move? <laughs> I don't know, because I, I nah, hated my teacher for that. Rand, wasn't Randall? Didn't... Yeah, fuck you, John Randall. Um, <laughs> <laughs> two years I took of his program. And um, oddly, he's the guy who I got to give him a little bit of credit. He made us watch Citizen Kane. And that was the only time me and him ever bonded was because I understood the, the, um, the nuance of why it was an important movie. Everybody mm -hmm. else was just like bored and they're like, like they got the technical stuff, which I never picked up, but I could, I could figure out how to write stuff. I could figure out what, what was a, an interesting way to approach this, you know, and he even gave me credit for it. Otherwise we hated each other. <laughs> so, um, but so if you were able to focus on film stuff during high school, like I'm, I'm taking, like, what's a class you've never used before? How often, how important is environmental science to you in your everyday life? Not that it shouldn't be learned, but on an everyday basis. Not super important. I mean, in retrospect, I definitely would have taken TV. You know, that, that's, that was a mistake at the time. And I remember thinking that like later on, like junior year, senior year, you're like, why didn't I go that route? It's something I'm passionate about, but live and learn. Exactly. Well, you he was too busy making his own movies in my backyard with airsoft guns, right? Also but true. Honestly, though, man, <laughs> truth be told, that's the best education there is, is just going out and doing it. Because you, you got to fail a little bit before you can make something pretty decent. It's, the, it's I'll, just like comedy. I'll be honest, uh, film school, it's not that I didn't learn anything, but I learned far more with the students out shooting their movies than I did in a classroom teaching you about F-stop and, and whatnot. And I'm theory just, and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, you got to do it yourself. I'm exactly. very hands-on. I had to do it myself to learn. And Greg was the mastermind for our early movies because he would do the editing. So it would be me in a parking lot shooting my airsoft gun, you know, pr like pretending yep. to have. And then, like... and then all of a sudden, Greg's got muzzle flashes and sound effects and cool music. And <laughs> 28 hours later, <laughs> he's much faster. The, the worst thing ever was we played one of the, the movies one time in my TV class because I was bragging about how great uh, of a job uh, our, our other friend, Matt Britton. And Greg uh, were like the two geniuses behind this. And everybody else kind of just fell in line. Um, but we uh, we had a really good time doing it. And then the one kid, I'll never forget because I, I love him. He's a great dude. Eric Niddle was in the class with us. And as we're watching it, um, we're shooting. We had a huge gunfight scene under this um, overpass in Wayne, right? And we're having – it's a big gunfight. There's abandoned cars. There's explosions going on in the background. The thing looks amazing. No one – in. The TV students who have now been taking the class for two years are blown away. I was like, holy shit, Standle did this? <laughs> and, and then the one kid, Eric Niddle, innocently, didn't even mean to say, he goes, is that the PAL in the background? <laughs> <laughs> it, just, it just took the piss right out of us, man. Oh, no, dude. That happens more often than not where, like, something in the background will completely distract you from the thing. <laughs> the same thing happened with a zombie film me and my friends made for, for our television class in high school. We had we had what it looked like an abandoned field, and we had like uh -oh. we had a whole group of zombies coming in. But then in the background of a zombie horde, you see a little kid run in the background to grab his soccer ball that he kicked into the frame in the way back. <laughs> <laughs> and my kid, and my teacher's like, "What's up with the zombie kid? Zombie kid? Oh." <laughs> 
Well, as you can see, too, then, because uh, if you guys had a chance, you guys both wound up doing this thing in the business. I'm very proud of both of you with that. Um, but Orson, uh, he's a genius, but he's insufferable. The, the students hated him. He was a tubby kid, but he was tall and, like, built. He loved it, but the, but the students hated he him. Wasn't, he wasn't well-liked. Not at all. He, there was one, in, in literally in his own biography, they find a girl from his school at the time, the Todd Seminary, uh, who just told him, she goes, I went up to him one day, told him exactly what I thought of him. Like, just told, like talking, you're cocky, you're arrogant, you're, you know, you're full of shit, you're tubby, you shouldn't be this kind. And he just goes, uh, like, looks back at her. Now imagine like a 12-year-old kid with a deep, deep voice just going, we all have our little idiosyncrasies, don't we? <laughs> and just like, I couldn't fathom it. Like, we would have beat this kid up, dude. <laughs> um, Wait, is that what he said to her? Yes. No the way. Exact quote. That's, that's her recollecting Orson defending himself to her. And not even defending, just saying, like, yeah, it is what it is, bitch. And just walking away. <laughs> but uh, his genius is on full display, though. And uh, the headmaster of the school, Roger Hill, who becomes his lifelong mentor, uh, starts adapting around his genius. So let's say Greg Stanley goes into the TV production in uh, high school. And, uh, you know, the teacher, uh, you know, is better than what he was. And uh, notices right away, oh, wow, this kid's going to work in the business. Let's start working with him. And uh, all of a sudden, Greg has, uh, uh, instead of a study hall, you are hanging out in the TV studio. Mm -hmm. uh, instead of, like, one of your extra electives would be a double period of TV. Like, this guy's working around you on right. that. So he goes, Orson, what do you want to do? And Orson goes, theater! <laughs> <laughs> so this is where um, he's dicking around on uh, theater, and then also he's fascinated by radio, right? And radio, just to give the zeitgeist of the times, Dad, TV's not a regular thing yet. No, not yet. And I mean, actually, this is the early days of, of radio. We're going to find out later when Orson makes his big splash with his major production. That's termed the golden age of radio. But uh, 1920s is really the, uh, the start of radio. And uh, when you start to get uh, Westinghouse and some of these other people that they're now mass producing. Yeah, that Westinghouse Kahuna. Yeah, that one. That, that Westinghouse. <laughs> Electric chair for those who want to listen to that episode. Yeah. And the elevator in this freaking building. Um, but it's really during uh, Warren G. Harding's, uh, uh, Hoover rather, I'm sorry, Hoover's uh, presidency where they start um, putting governmental parameters on these various upstart radio stations and that type of a thing. But um, it wasn't until I think the middle of the 20s and when we had our first um, radio sports broadcast. I mean, if you wanted to know the news, um, you either had to read the newspaper or go to uh, some of the earlier um, movie theaters where they would show these newsreels. But in the 20s, that was really when radio took off big time that uh, by the early 30s, um, about 90% of the households in America had the, a, a radio. It was kind of like, well, who's got the first TV mm -hmm. in the 1950s? Or who's got the first color TV? Or who's As got Greg the, and I talked about on the way down, who's got the 64, first Nintendo screen, 64. You know, flat screen <laughs> TV, like, holy shit, this is big time, you know, HD, uh, HD TV type of thing. Well just roll that back into the 20s the middle 20s to the late 30s is really uh where radio is the the up and comer that's the big mass media um approach now that's revolutionary for its time but it's not revolutionary enough for orson orson starts doing uh because we had movies we really liked that were influenced in our early stuff i know road to perdition was a big one oh, such a good movie. and then you are the guy who got me hooked on 
the soundtrack of this movie and then also the movie itself. Um, I'll let you say the name of it. Al Pacino, Robert De Niro. Oh, God. Heat? Yep. It's the best movie ever. It's one of my favorite The best gunfight ever, too, by the way. I would say that. Oh, it's so good. Not going to lie. I was expecting Escape from New York. (laughs) It's uh, (laughs) The heat, the shootout in me is like on another, just the sounds. You're not not wrong, man. That's a great movie. Won the Oscar for it, too. And that's another movie that's brilliant, but only gets one Oscar. Kind of like something else we're going to talk about in a second. Um, But what we did is we took movies we liked, and I'm sure you've taken shit that that you're influenced by in your projects. And uh, what our boy Orson's doing on the, the school radio is he'll tell Shakespeare, you know, he'll do a Shakespeare play or something like that, or he'll tell a story that's been well enough, he'll tell it from a different character's perspective. That's cool. So he's already, or he'll do a twist on a motif here. Pretty cool shit he's about to come up with. These early days of his creative stuff, uh, he's almost like Bugs Bunny, um, (laughs) because, like, you'll hear the credits at the end, written by Orson Welles, directed by Orson Welles. Special thanks to Orson Welles. You know, he does everything. He's a a one-man army in that regard. Uh, Again, he's a genius. He gets all these letters from the headmaster of the school and other people saying this kid's something. Uh, Gets accepted into Harvard. But around this time, his father dies, right? So his father hadn't been really seeing him. Supposedly, Orson threatened to stop seeing him altogether if he didn't quit drinking. And then uh, it backfired because that threw his father like, I've lost everything. Now my own son hates me. I'm just going to drink more. And he, it killed him. And Orson felt a lot of guilt about that in some of his rare emotive moments. Um, but he uh, gets his small inheritance, decides uh, I can either go to Harvard or I can, uh, you know, I've been developing some skills as a painter. Um, he's starting to drink a little bit himself around this time frame, by the way. And, uh, he needs to go somewhere that he can work as a painter, uh, get a little bit of the booze that he seems to be enjoying himself with, uh, be valued as a writer and a creative type. And he needs pleasant scenery to, uh, paint dad. Is there, uh, some weird little bog ridden Island that he might wind up? (laughs) Yeah. He starts traveling about, but he goes over to Ireland and, uh, starts touring around Ireland and sees all the all the famous sites in there, but, uh, um, you know, he arrived in Galway, um, starts hiking around the Irish countryside. Which is where the Burks are from, by the way. Uh, yeah. And then, uh, again, that whole, um, you know, bullshit ability. Um, he, um, goes to Dublin Gate Theatre while he's in Ireland and presents himself as a a visiting New York, uh, star. (laughs) And, uh, lands a role in this in this play that bullshit thing you were talking about Greg <laughs> right. back back in spades right now but and it, it's all it's all bullshit you know he's not a, any New York star but that's the way he presents himself mm. did you know he went broke upon the first week of his trip by the way yeah he had, he had very little money spent everything he had on uh, uh, he even says this that it was his his original three vices drinks food in the theater and the theater he goes that was my that was my entry way, you know? So he's like, this was, I went broke by design, you know, and <laughs> yeah. shows up in, now, Greg, imagine you're casting a play and like my father, keep going, dad. Explain. No, it's just, just that. I mean, he presents himself as this New York uh, theater star and uh, uh, they give him a shot and it turns out that, yeah, this kid can definitely deliver. And he's, he's a young kid. He's like, I think maybe 19 at the time, maybe not even that old. He's, There's he's a photo of him teens. when he's, he's 16 and a photo of him, uh, riding a bicycle in the Aran Islands, which are uh, okay. islands off the coast of Ireland. Uh, he's 15, Ireland. 16 years old. Yeah, and wow. uh, Uncle Bobby goes there every summer, by the way. Shout out to the uh, the, the, the Glenrock Burke family. Um, <laughs> but uh, Uncle Bobby, we can't bring him in because he will speak Gaelic the entire That's episode. That's right. Uh, just just to break stones, a, <laughs> he'll, he'll do nothing but speak Irish. He's a bit of a... He's, he's our... Um, 
it's weird that our patriarch of the family is also our black sheep, but it is what it is. <laughs> um, but yeah, he's over there. And uh, now imagine, Greg, you're booking this play and um, a guy comes over and says, I'm a New York side. It's almost like uh, Tobias Funke in Arrested Development. That Funke, let me tell you, you know, and he's he's given all this bullshit. And um, but you're interested in him because mm-hmm. the guy's got he's he, his auditions good. His credentials don't really. Pay. So they said like later on, they're like, listen, we kind of knew he was full of shit, but we figured we'd take a chance on the kid. And uh, so he's getting starring roles uh, based off of a fake Broadway career he never had. There's no proof. I'm sure he had been to New York, but there's no real. He wasn't doing anything in New York right. prior to this. Right. So he's now uh, at the star at the Gate Theater, which is still standing, by the way, in Ireland. Um, and he's now a star on these productions. It's uh, so his bullshit works. Does yeah, that make any sense? It. It's unbelievable. That, that was my point that he's he's able to deliver. He might be able to bullshit his way in, but then he is able to deliver the goods. So he takes that. And now he becomes this, uh, you know, Irish stage star. Goes back to New York and presents himself there as, "Hey, I'm 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 hot shit from Ireland." Best and quote <laughs> ever from him, by the way. Do you, did you remember this one? No. It, it was in the documentary we watched. And my father is a, a he does so much research. I tease him for it. He's the, he's a learned man, folks. All right, but he did fall asleep during the documentary we were watching. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was that was, a th- that was a struggle. That documentary dry at times. Yeah, um, but. Uh, Anyway, uh, the line that he had that I thought was hilarious was, uh, he goes, I began my career in show business as a star, and it's been a slow descent ever since. <laughs> so did he just lie about the names of the productions? He just said, oh, yeah, I was in that and this and that. Yeah. And they just said, oh, cool, great, you're on. It, it Pretty much. He was yeah. able to pull it. I mean, back then, no internet, no TV, no social media. So there's really no double, not going to call overseas. So he kind of, you know, he had that on lock, I guess. He knew. We've got a Broadway guy here uh, in Ireland who's willing to act for uh, pretty much nothing. So should we pay him? Is he good? Yeah, he's good. He's just full of shit. All right, you're hired. (laughs) Perfect quality for uh, what he was trying to do. The pay scale is great. So I think that was a big part of it, too. It was Now, he he winds up going back to the States, like you said, LP, and he's got a little – he's got some – he's got legit credits now that he bullshitted his way into. Mm -hmm. Um but uh, here's my whole thing. I don't lie about my comedy career, but I don't have to correct people when they're wrong either. So when they uh, yeah. example, uh, multiply it, you yeah. know, like make it bigger than it really there, is. There's enough photos of me and people in comedy that I've admired, and I've been brought on the road by enough comics I admire. But there's one photo in particular that a lot of people think is more than what it was. It was, it was done as a goof, and people took it seriously. Uh, and I will never mention which photo because it has gotten me booked on a lot of shit. <laughs> so did he admit this after the fact when he was rich and famous? Oh, yeah, I bullshitted my way into the game. Oh, or yeah. Did we find this out after he died? It was uh, he was it's so weird because he's almost the definition of an open book later in his life because he was just like he was he was yeah, very clear. He had already about made it. it. So he's like, oh, by the way. <laughs> yeah. And his interviews are I mean, they're fucking funny, man. They right. really are. Right. He's he's a funny dude on these interviews. Hmm. He was a late night guy. He was doing. um he was doing the uh, the man of the hour uh, Dean Martin celebrity roasts towards the end of his life. I mean, he was he a knew lot what of he it was. Too, though I think he was also playing to the audience that his interviews or the stories would change depending on they said that the time too. of the year you know, or the, <laughs> the time of his career. Like early on, he was in big denial over a certain radio broadcast. Um, that it wasn't predetermined, but then, you know, later on in life, after this whole thing just kind of blew up big time, well, then the stories changed. And a lot of the facets of his life changed as, you know, life went on kind of a thing, as things 
things get uh, a little more bigger than they are than uh, they were in reality at, at the time. Yeah, when when eventually you sign a big deal for your own podcast and you say, "Well, my son was really just a hang along." <laughs> he kind of he didn't really do much. Right. Um, but it was my idea. All along. <laughs> well, Wells' uh, other vice is about to become a parent too. By the way, he's now back at the Todd. He's working in radio. He's coming up with the, everyone around him is just like, "Listen." This guy makes no money, but everything he does is brilliant. Like, so I want to be around him, but I don't want to give him any money. Um, so he's back at the Todd doing some work here. And this is where his other vice starts to become apparent. He's now living in Chicago. And um, he's a tall guy, right? And as we all know, it doesn't matter how shitty of a person you are. If you're over six feet tall, you're never single. That's how that works. Um, a tall and brilliant man uh, is often not without a companion. And uh, Wells would elope with Chicago actress and socialite, Virginia Nicholson, who's very pretty if you look at her old photos. Um, and uh, this begins his long line of uh, uh, womanizing, if you will. But it's almost like, uh, uh, how do I put this? So it's almost like he's a kind man. He's not a jerk about anything, but he doesn't understand um, relationships. That's kind of a thing, a theme yeah. in his life. Well, right? I don't think he had really had anything to base that on in his formative yeah. years growing up as a kid yeah mom's dead at nine dad's a booze bag all right i'm supposed to hang out with you now okay and watching watching mom uh you know fritter about when when she was still alive that uh she was a a social butterfly or uh, anyway that's where his flirtatious streak (laughs) comes right he's a good looking guy too i mean he's not the 400 pound guy that he became uh, later in life he's a good looking guy at this point Great. He's 19 years old, so he's a young, good-looking guy, that uh, tall, handsome. Um, uh, able got, to manipulate people? Able, <laughs> able to manipulate people. And I did that a little bit. When he's I, a star, you know. He might be a self-proclaimed star, but he's a star. And But here's the other thing people know. The word of mouth is good on this guy, that, that every teacher is saying, you know, like, oh, a brilliant student. Everyone, everyone who's working with him is like, yeah, he's, he's a hard-ass, but he's also brilliant. Right. He's a bit of a loose cannon, but uh, he is—he <laughs> is, he is uh, a big gun, no doubt. Well, here comes uh, here comes the, the start the start of where his national fame begins to grow. He is getting talked up in theater circles because he's got this program known as the Mercury Theater. Now we're, we're we haven't gotten there yet, but uh, um, there's a couple little things that happened beforehand with that. But um, yeah, he he gets involved with this Mercury Theater, but he also gets a name for himself on, on Broadway, that he's uh, starring uh, as Hamlet, um, so he makes a big name for himself. Oh, he some, said Shakespeare was his favorite writer. Right. Shakespeare was, was big. Um, we also have to remember, too, that we're now in the, uh, in the 1930s. So what's going on in the 1930s uh, worldwide, but especially here in the United States, is a little economic. Um, the good old Great Depression. Yeah. The, the Depression, right? Right. So nothing too major. So the, you know, extra money to go out to the theater and that, and that type of a thing is not really happening. Um, there are being movies made, but radio is this new up and comer type of thing. Um, but again, there's a depression going on. Um, part of the uh, FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's um, key programs was uh, the, uh, the New Deal, 
that money, government money was being spent on bringing some of these people out of the despair. We got like 25% unemployment. Um, so <laughs> it's hard times for sure. I've gotten that on a test before. So 25%. <laughs> that was a that was a score, right? <laughs> um, but uh, under the uh, Roosevelt New Deal program, there's something called the Works Progress Administration. Uh, it's a federal theater project. Um, and there's a guy by the name of John Hausman who um, lands part of this uh, federal monies to start this whole uh, Negro theater unit and starts to make a big-time name for himself. Now, John Hausman, when I first did the research, I'm saying, yeah, that name sounds familiar, but I really couldn't place it. Handsome man, if I recall uh, from his photos. Sarcastic. Yeah, he, he was, uh, he was um, actually new to the whole uh, theater type of thing himself because uh, he lost everything but the 1929 crash himself. So he's, he's working a federal program. Uh, this federal program, this uh, theater project, was paying out-of-work uh, actors $20 a week just to give them something to do. And Greg, do you know any actors around. that would take that current wage at right now in 2020? <laughs> $20 a week. I don't want to say anything <laughs> offensive. <laughs> but uh, John Hausman, uh, some of us uh, might remember him as uh, Professor Kingsley in The Paper Chase, which was a movie and then later a TV series that uh, English uh, English bred, very well spoken, uh, very well educated, uh, and he also did the uh, commercials for uh, the investment company Smith Barney, where he said they make money the old-fashioned way; they earn it. You know, he was a, he was he was a class act, um, but he recognizes um, he recognizes um, Orson Welles as this new up-and-comer, and he re recognizes the talent that this guy has. And brings him in um, to this theater group that he's starting. And he does uh, Orson's first production. He's 20 years old. Orson Welles is 20 years old. And he joins this whole project with Hausman. And they do an adaptation of Shakespeare's Macbeth. But it's an entirely African-American cast. And it became known as Voodoo Macbeth. Made huge um, uh, killing on this kind of a thing that... Sold out reviews. every performance. Huh? Sold, Sold out every yeah. performance. Yeah. Can I explain Voodoo Macbeth, by the way? Absolutely. Just for Go for so it. So you guys, um, I know you guys are both familiar with Macbeth, right? Yeah. Known as the, I think there's a, in there superstition that you don't, you call it the Scottish play. You don't mention it as Macbeth. I, I remember that back in high school. I don't remember what that is, but if yeah. you want to elaborate on that. Well, it's, so Macbeth is a Shakespeare play. It takes place in Scotland. It's all about uh, uh, kings and murder. And it's, it's really a perfect story. A lot of great movies and stuff that we enjoy today are modeled off of it. And is witchcraft involved with uh, yes. Shakespeare's Macbeth? So you need that. You, so you have the witchcraft there and you have Scotland as the setting, right? Um, so what he did in order to make what became known as Voodoo Macbeth was he put the, uh, he did an all black production of it and uh, which was revolutionary for the time in a lot of ways. And then he did uh, uh, the scenery was now, or the location I should say was now Haiti and it was voodoo instead of witchcraft. So, uh, mm. and they said it sold out every night and it was audiences were raving about it nonstop. And the running joke was that one reviewer, one critic gave it a bad review in the paper. 
and uh, that uh, you know the, the voodoo people found out his name and said his name around a voodoo circle, and the guy died three days later. <laughs> oh damn! And he produced it and directed it. Was he in it or uh, Orson wasn't in it? It was. Uh, it, it, here's an interesting thing that we're going to cover in uh, the next little spot, like, and we have to start moving a little bit faster just because the guy's too interesting. But um, he's one of those guys that uh, if you could, if he had to pick between being an actor. Or being behind the camera, he would pick behind the camera at all times. However, he was a good actor and he was a name because everybody knew Orson Welles. Is. Like we said it, and you both of you guys were like, "Oh shit, I know some stuff about that guy." Yeah, he's famous. He's been dead since the '80s. Right. <laughs> you know, he's still fucking famous. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, what he would do while he was working on the, this crazy stuff here too is that he would go back and forth between the radio. He had radio jobs that were trying to. Because keep in mind, he's married. Yeah, he's all over the place, mm-hmm. man. He's in radio. He's in theater. He's do you remember how he traveled between he's the two of them? All. This could be Orson bullshit. We can't tell if this is true. Yeah, or not. this was a story that Orson told that he would go around town because he was involved with so many different things that he would jump into an ambulance. Wow! <laughs> and the ambulance would drive him around town because um, you couldn't you couldn't stop an ambulance for uh, you know speeding, <laughs> whether you're laying down on the back or you're up front <laughs> in the cab. Um, so, oh my god he was he was using that as his probably uh, had like a catering table around around. <laughs> <laughs> there you go he didn't sleep either that was he was in so here's how annoying he would be to work for as a like greg you're a fair guy you're a good guy um you know obviously uh as kids not knowing what we're doing there'd be times when people bumped heads on the sets of uh career and crime and whatnot it happened right <laughs> um it was uh a couple of interesting things for orson would be He's got play rehearsal all day for something he's working on, right? Mm-hmm. Not just Voodoo Macbeth, but anything. Then uh, he leaves there to go do his nighttime radio job. And while he's thinking about something, just like in the, it's a, I think it's called the shower principle. When you hop in the shower and you, the distraction of it makes you solve, like you, you, it suddenly you have a, a strike of inspiration, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. you know? So you sit there like, oh shit, that's what. So you almost need another project to focus on your other project more, which is, you know, uh, you know that, Dad, right? Like this podcast it. is just so you don't fix the deck. <laughs> um, right. I got shit to do when I get home. Come on, let's move this thing along. But um, anyway, in short, what he would do is uh, during his radio job, he'd sit there and be like, oh shit, that's it. And he'd call up as soon as he was done with the radio job, sometimes three, four o'clock in the morning. He would have phone calls going off and people knocking on doors to get his actors back in the theater. He goes, piece of inspiration just struck this is now the way we're going to do this scene and the actors are like if you weren't so fucking brilliant we would not tolerate this bullshit (laughs) but we're getting great reviews and he's very loyal to his people too and he owns like you said because of houseman he owns everything this is orson is a dictator in this theater yeah but it he has uh full control over the over the production houseman gives him that houseman is the producer but it's orson welles's project kind of thing so anyhow, this um, um, uh, this um, Voodoo Macbeth is a big hit. I mean, it, rave reviews by all the critics. He gets on the cover of Time Magazine for He's it. on the cover of Time Magazine. Really? So he's mm-hmm. nationwide. He's recognized, not just New York theater circles, but nationwide. This is an up-and-comer, this young... <laughs> Was he 19, 20 That's years crazy. old? I was just about point. to say, he's got to be old. like 20, 21 yep. years old. Yeah, not even, he's got not like, even yet. There's literally like Dick Tracy type stuff when uh, like the magazine and newspaper after newspaper keeps popping up with like the, you know, they kept calling him the kid genius. So, you know, it, it's a lot to live up to, but he's kicking ass with her. And all of a sudden these actors are like, well, this is why we put up with your bullshit because you're talking about our theater, that I'm a Mercury Theater actor 
and that just got mentioned in Time Magazine, I think I'm going to weather the storm yeah, with right. some 4 a.m. wake-ups. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting point, too, that, that all of these big hits, uh, rave reviews, are really with um, federal theater projects. You know, that these these are actors that are that were out of work, and now this guy is putting on productions that are smash hits type of thing and getting uh, national acclaim um, because of it. Um, he goes on and does some other things uh, with Hausman. Uh, I gotta, I gotta mention this one though. He Go does ahead. one um, that really started to later on in life, kind of people came back to it. But he does um, this one production called "The Cradle Will Rock." Now there's shit. A, I blanked. I, I mentioned it later in the thing, but I blanked. Please go into this. You, okay. you found yeah. a, a blank spot it's for a, me. It's a musical that you know. Some of the research that they, they I did, they call it a socialist musical. Uh, and again, you got to remember the times here that if people are out of work, uh, the unions are not fondly looked upon because uh, a lot of people feel that's one of the reasons why they're out of work, or there is no work. Um, but anyhow, there's a, a guy, uh, um, a writer, um, director, not a director, but a writer, Mark uh, Bill Blistein, does this socialist musical called The Cradle Will Rock. And again, these are all federally funded projects right now. Mm. Um, Orson Welles is the, uh, the um, director of this whole thing. He designs these elaborate sets. Uh, they've got all kinds of costumes going on. They're in a theater. Um, they're all ready to go with this whole big uh, musical. Um, people get wind of that, well, wait a minute, this is kind of like a socialist sand. And you got to remember that over in Europe, there's a guy by the name of Benito Mussolini that is a fascist. There's a guy by the name of Hitler who is a Nazi that... This whole socialism, socialist kind of thing with the Russians and everything else is really not looked upon too favorably by the by the masses. Yeah. And um, when the federal authorities get wind of this, they come in and they shut the whole thing down. Right. They they padlock the theater because it was a federally owned theater. They padlock the theater. They um, they shut down all the props, all the all the scenery, all the costumes, even to the point where Hausman later on in an interview said they even they even put the lock on the the leading actors to pay <laughs> that the guy couldn't go in and take his own to pay kind of thing. So they shut this whole thing down like a, two days before opening night. So I'm like the frig are we gonna do here? Um, Orson Welles tells um, one of the uh, one of the uh, understudies to go out and find a piano some beat up old piano like here's five bucks go go buy a beat up old piano now five bucks during depression time but anyhow this guy calls back yeah i got this piano put it on a truck and just drive around and and call back later they keep promoting Hausman and, and wells keep promoting we're going to open up we're going to open up we're going to have this opening night Meanwhile, the whole theater is locked down. They got all these people in, you know, just waiting. It comes to opening night. The crowd is outside the theater that is now locked. All the actors and, and the the chorus and the musicians, this is a full-blown full thing here. 
they're all waiting. Well, where the hell are we going with this? Um, then finally, somebody comes in and says, hey, there's a theater 20 blocks away. I got the key. It's an abandoned theater. It was shut down again because of the depression kind of thing. But I got the key. So they go out and they'll announce to the production, to the cast, the crew, <laughs> and to the audience, right, the theater goers, hey, we're moving the things 20 blocks away. Meet us at such and such a theater. Everybody makes a beeline over there. Meanwhile, the guy with the piano on the truck is riding around, and he goes to the ah. theater. Mark, they can say they're going to put this thing on um, regardless in this other theater, and they're going to do it without um, costumes, without sets, and you know everything else that's been <laughs> locked up. And if we have to, we're going to have Mark Bilstein, the guy who wrote the play, um, he's just going to go up on the stage and bang out on this dilapidated old piano. He's going to bang out this whole musical. It's going to be a one-man show, all right? Uh, because the actors were all, by the actors' union, were forbid to go up on stage. So now they move to this other theater 20 blocks away. It's three times the size of the theater that they were going to open up in. And Bill Steens goes up on stage, starts playing the opening number, and then um, on cue, this first actor, she rises up out of the audience. So all the actors are in the audience because they were forbid by union rules to go up on stage. But nobody said anything about not being able to play from the house. We told you this little prick was inventive. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, all these actors now are just popping up out of the audience in the house and going through their parts. And uh, a little I am Spartacus type yeah. vibe, too. And, and while they're telling everybody where the new theater is, where the thing is actually going to open up, they say, and bring a friend, bring a friend. So they, they pack the house, and the house is now three times the size. So it's a, it's a full house. <laughs> of course, you got the, uh, the uh, cast and crew in there as well. Um, but uh, they paid. They played to a packed house for the next ten nights. It's a big smash hit kind of a thing. Wow. That, uh, um, but of course, Orson Welles and uh, John Hausman were immediately fired from this whole federal project. So they they were out of work at that particular point. And then they. But when decide, you're a genius, you know. But, but when you're a genius and people are recognizing, hey, this guy is a friggin' genius with the, with what he pulled off. Um, then they start the uh, the Mercury Theater Group and the heavy hitters that were in this Mercury Theater Group. So they're no longer federally funded. They're, Mom they're out on their own. Yeah, Mom knew one of the uh, the actresses. There's there's a bunch of them in there that uh, um, were part of this Mercury Theater Group. I think the one that Mom recognized was Agnes Moorhead. Yep. Who was a uh, – there was there – was, a lot of she was the mother on Bewitched. Come on, Larry, give him some, give him something to work with here. That's pretty impressive. Uh, yeah. So she would. But yeah, but she did early a lot. On. She did a lot of movies, and a lot of the people that were in this newfounded Mercury Theater Group later on went with Wells to what would later become uh, RKO uh, Pictures. But uh, we're, I don't know if I'm getting a little ahead of no, your you. No, you're perfect. I, we got to set them up because here's the thing. So when you're a genius and everything you do is genius, and you're working on a million different things. Typically, you have one project. Like, what you have, you have a bunch of stuff on your uh, radar right now, right, Greg? Mm -hmm. So, do you have one project that you think is going to be the money maker? 
Yeah, I try to take on, I try to focus on one at a time, even if I have several. Right. And I'll just work on something for 10, 12 hours, then I'll either stop for the Jesus. day or shift to something. I can't work on two things at once. I can't do four hours of one, four hours of another. I like to just yeah. like get one thing done. So and if you're someone like Orson Welles, who's got his, you know, his hands in different, I mean, for what you were saying about the, uh, about the play, it's kind of like that Streisand effect where the government tried to like, you know, nobody can see this, but it only kind of upped the anticipation. People wanted to see it more nice. because of that, you know? Yeah. That's a good point. Absolutely. So yeah, now you have a uh, uh, you know this uh, this film is not to be seen by anyone, and now it's the exactly. grossing movie kind right, of thing. Right. Why, why? What is it that the government's trying to hide exactly. from me? Exactly. I'm not supposed to know. Wait a minute. The, it's yeah. too hot to yeah. handle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They just did that with uh, with the Hunt by Universal. Like they they pulled it for whatever for a few different reasons. Oh, was that like the rich people trying to get, yeah. getting killed by poor people or something? Yeah, yeah. like it was a. They pulled that, and people were like, "You can't see this. This is." horrendous and everyone was like i want to see it <laughs> it's like, gonna be to dude, five this. years from now it'll probably be huge so the, the reason i asked that is because we got it and and by the way i um i'm not actually doing it for legal purposes but let's just say i did a big fucking line of cocaine for the sake of the episode and we gotta get a <laughs> bunch of information out here quickly bullet points yeah we're, we're into what well, we don't worry that the second half of his life is going to be all bullet points however We've set up a, a pretty good yeah, example here. We set up pretty much who this dude is. I'm impressed yeah. by this guy so far. I am too. I never I mean, knew the story of Voodoo Macbeth. He, it, no, it's, I didn't. Dude, he's so far ahead of his time, and that's why he's only getting appreciated still in the 2020s. Okay, again, 40 years after his death. Um, we're still talking about it, and the shit he did is still revolutionary. Mm -hmm. And uh, by the way, his back then, he said, I like to study the old masters when he was talking about film directing. And, he goes, and by that, I meant John Ford, John Ford, and John Ford. That was an exact quote from him who made like the best Westerns ever. Right. Yeah. So, um, that part, so that's who he's inspired by. And then meanwhile, everybody today, Scorsese, ask anyone, uh, Peter Bogdanovich, anybody that got involved with this documentary we watched, there was like, Wilson was the greatest thing ever. And this was, they, they always debate what his best movie was too. So as we're moving forward here real quick, I got to hit a couple of things. LP, thank you for laying down the cradle of rock. I, I literally gave it one line and yeah, that's I think the it, antithesis it, of the show. Right. <laughs> the cradle of rock was, was so contra like, you, like Greg's saying, it's, it's a controversial kind of a thing. So people just want to go see, find out what the whole controversy is about. Right. So now he likes to tell these Shakespeare stories on the radio from different points of view. So he's just dicking around. He's throwing shit at the wall, seeing what's in her, what keeps him interested, that kind of thing. But the theater projects that you're talking about, Greg, that'd be your 10, 12 hour workdays, the theater. Now, all of a sudden, this guy accidentally steps in shit with the most brilliant radio performance of all time. Right. So with the Shakespeare plays, he's dicking around and he does um, he would do something like from uh, one of the proclaimers uh, point of view in like Julius Caesar. You know, that that guy comes out and just sets the tone like that guy was like the newscaster of Rome, if you will. So he starts playing around with that stuff. Not the 500 miles proclaimers, Kahuna. All right, give me a break on that one. Will you? <laughs> and when I'll wake up. But uh, anyway, he's now dicking around with that stuff. He's got this idea that he's getting a little bit bored with um, this radio production they're going to be doing on uh, uh, an H.G. Wells novel, no relation, um, uh, called War of the Worlds. And he decides it would be more interesting uh, for his Mercury Theater radio troupe that he has the actors coming in, like stuff like that, and it's going to be Orson Welles, and he's going to tell it as if it's happening to him in a news broadcast kind of a vibe. And uh, I, I'll let you tell the rest of the story, but I, I do want to ask Greg real quick, what do you know off the top of your head about this? Because you, you know this is a story, right? Yeah, yeah. You can't I, be wrong. This is just what you know. What I know about it is that it was a radio broadcast where I think it started out slow and then just like kind of like with, with, the, uh, with the play, it just kind of spiraled out of control where the whole country was talking about it, where um, they spotted lights somewhere. It was in New Jersey, right? 
here's our Jersey connection, <laughs> baby. Yeah. I don't know what town, but yeah, the people were spotting lights in the sky. And then like, you know, other people were calling in, which was probably part of the hoax, I would think, or people were verifying what they were seeing, but it wasn't, obviously it wasn't true. And then like, before you know it, the whole country was talking about it. And that was his claim. To yeah. Fame. So Orson's got that great radio voice, much like a certain shop teacher we know, huh? <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, he's got this great radio voice. He's doing it like an authentic, you know, news production. Like he's just he goes, and uh, uh, we're here uh, on the scene now. Uh, uh, flying saucers heading towards the Earth. Uh, an odd cosmic gas, you know, emanating from with. He's doing all this. Great. And they said that the thing that set it apart, that made it the stuff of legit legend, was that he goes, and uh, something's coming down from uh, inside one of the saucers here, and it appears to. And he just ends the his section of the broadcast just going. And he went silent, right? <laughs> yeah. He went silent. He himself, he didn't warn anybody he was going to do this. He screams, let's add a shriek. And he says he can see the people in the booth going like, what the fuck is he doing? <laughs> <laughs> and he's keeping silent. And people are losing their minds. People, the the letters that were coming in, and I want you to hit it in a second. I know this is your sweet spot on the yeah, episode, yeah. Dad. But the immediate impact is that police in Jersey are saying, People are shooting at the water towers right now. Yeah. Um, the the letters that are coming in are either saying, bravo, Mr. Wells, you gave us a great scare. What a thrill that was. Or I'm going to come to your fucking house and kill you, wow. you bastard. <laughs> yeah. So now you we mentioned it earlier. Greg knew it because it was from Jersey. Jersey. We have a Jersey reference we do every week here on the show, much to the chagrin of some of our listeners. Um, <laughs> but LP, uh, briefly give us this. Then we got to go into his seminal work. And then All we right. can do bullet points All for right. the well, second I'll, half I'll of I'll try to be as quick as I can here, which is a uh, major change challenge for for LP but uh, they go from this whole federally sponsored theater group to their own Mercury theater group they're killing it on Broadway and making big names for themselves and then they're asked um, by CBS radio um, to um, do a summer show uh, it was so this was just like a fill-in kind of a thing but they were doing it so well with the Mercury Theater Group that they now spin off into the Mercury um, Radio Theater Group, uh, Mercury Theater on the Air. It was really started out as first person. The name of the show was First Person Singular, which was basically Orson Welles telling stories on the radio. He, he had such a fantastic radio voice and could tell a tale like no other that... Uh, um, I guess after about 11 episodes, this was a, a weekly radio show. And again, radio is it. Radio is king. Radio is now taking away a lot of advertising and that type of thing from newspapers. So there's a little bit of a um, back and forth between the, radio, the printed media and, and radio media. You got to remember, too, the times here, FDR is, is making a name for himself and, and in endearing himself to the rest of the nation with his fireside chats via the radio. So it's, it's a powerful media source type of thing. And um, anyhow, um, uh, CBS radio uh, invites Orson Welles to create this summer show for 13 weeks. And they the, uh, the, the ambulances and uh, fire trucks and cops just, in the background. That's uh they're, That's they're, all part of our sound. Yeah, they're right? coming towards us now. They can't believe we're talking about this. They're so, like, oh, not again. Who's talking about the Cradle of Rock? So he, uh, he's given um, complete um, control over these radio shows by CBS. And Orson immediately makes a pain in the ass of himself with the... Uh, Recurring themes. <laughs> with, the, uh, with the rest of the studio people. And the sound effects people are... are 
are losing their their mind over what he's demanding from them. Um, like he's doing um, one of the things with uh, Hamlet. Um, I believe it was Hamlet. One of the radio, earlier broadcasts that he. Oh, I'm sorry. It was it was Dracula where. He's telling uh, the Dracula story over the radio, and there was a point where they want to stick a, a stake into the heart, and he's just would not let up on this whole thing about that he had to have the sound effects um, just absolutely correct with this. And so it, his mind was already like film oriented, even doing radio, because like he was planning hits and stuff like that to a T. Even just with radio. Yeah, and, but at the same time, he's also doing daytime theater and then going off to the to the radio station at night to to broadcast. So, like, he's he's all over the map, but he's brilliant with with so many different things. Um, this sound effect on this um, on this uh, Dracula thing that they said that he finally came up with this thing that he came out of the out of this uh, sound booth and takes a hammer to a watermelon. <laughs> and hammers this watermelon, but the sound effect was so perfect to mimic a stake going through the heart of the oh, vampire. <laughs> that, I hear it. That they said even the stu the live studio audience was like like gasping and like in shock kind of a thing, and they were saying that it came. <laughs> Meanwhile, radio. young Gallagher is like, I think I'm going into show business. <laughs> <laughs> go. Maybe that's where Gallagher got his, uh, his idea from. But anyhow, just the, the detail that Orson Welles would go into with all of his productions was amazing. You know, made him a pain in the ass to everybody else that he was working with. But he was brilliant so that they would put up with his stuff. Anyhow, he wanted to do all these different um, dramas on the radio that were not necessarily theater productions, but would tell a good story. And he decides that he wanted to do this... Uh, H.G. Wells' novel um, or story on the War of the Worlds, that in the original book, um, these Martians come in and attack Great Britain. Well, he puts a spin on that, that they're not going to attack Great Britain, but they're going to attack Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Which later, <laughs> Jersey, by the way, get, in the is, movie with Tom Cruise, they make Bayonne. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, it's outside that. of West Windsor. It's outside of Trenton, really. Um, um, where this whole thing takes place. But the, the guy who wrote the radio play for this thing is a guy by the name of Cotts. Now, he was a recent hire. He's only done three other earlier radio productions for them. And he's given the assignment on a Monday, hey, Sunday night, because that was when the radio broadcast was going to take place on a Sunday night. He's given the story on uh, Monday that you're going to be doing this H.G. Wells um, War of the Worlds for Sunday night's performance. And the guy's like losing his crap because he's, cause he's reading the H.G. Wells. And he said, this is really going to be difficult to make this exciting and, and, and everything else. He goes back to Hausman, I guess, a day later saying, this H.G. Wells thing, this War of the Worlds, it's a loser. You know, we... Hated we, it. <laughs> hated it. Yeah. Can we do something else? Hausman says, well, I'll talk to Wells. Hausman goes to Wells. Wells is in the middle of a 36-hour rehearsal um, for a different play that he was doing. So they've been at this for 36 hours. Hausman comes to Wells and like he just he's just 
too involved with this daytime theater production kind of a thing, goes back to, to Koch and says, now, nah, you got to do it. You, you, this they, is an ordinary day on, in yeah, the life of the business, right, Greg? Life, this is, life in the <laughs> business, right? So he, he, uh, Koch comes up with a, a rough draft. Wells finally uh, reads through it, I think. It's now Friday. It's, it's really late in the week that he's not, he's not liking it. Wells is not liking it at all and starts to interject different things that were going to make this more of a, uh, uh, a uh, what did you call it before? A uh, news, news bulletin type of right. thing. Right, he changes the point of view. I'm using it right? Point of view, ah. all right? The point of view that this was actually going to be a news uh, a broadcast or we're going to interrupt the normal broadcast with this news flash of these Martians landing in New Jersey. And that's what really came to play. Kind of like the grindhouse trailers in between the two movies. Oh, Just, I'm uh, trying to give pop culture references to keep people uh, uh, on the same page here. Okay, you're going hyper brilliant. Question: again. He had this 13 week deal. So the other 12 weeks, he wasn't doing that as presenting that as some kind of newscast. This was just this specific show was right. being put. Right. This was this was one of the first that they were going to do this whole news bulletin type of. Uh, so it must have been it. so convincing because people may have been already listening to previous weeks and they knew it wasn't right. Like, you know what I mean? So people were so blown. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, you said I, I, too that he didn't think the War of the Worlds one was going to be as big of a deal as it wound he, up being. He did not. Early on, everybody. You, Dracula. That's where you put your money. Dracula. <laughs> that's the one. War of the Worlds. Horseshit. Not really doing much with it. All the uh, all the crew on this uh, Mercury Theater group or uh, radio group were like, "This is really a this is a dud, you know. And on their first read through, this is this is not real exciting stuff. It's rotten. Until, rotten tomatoes. Until <laughs> exactly until Orson shows up and and starts interjecting all these different things. And the final script that they read or they send to the CBS um, um, reviewers, they're losing their stuff. You're making too many mentions of, of no, we're going to be liable, we're going to be sued because you're mentioning this and that. So a lot of the things they did in the actual broadcast, like they make mention of the uh, uh, Princeton University Observatory, <laughs> right? Well, that was later changed in the actual broadcast to be the Princeton Observatory. They they took university out of it, so there was a lot of really close uh, approximations hmm. of actual places. But that was one of the scary things about it. Uh, a lot of people um, attribute to um, the whole panic that this radio broadcast created was because a lot of people tuned in late. Um, yeah, now, imagine by the way if he had sponsors too for the thing where it's, right. the aliens are arriving they're starting to arrive you know what else is arriving sales at ll bean yeah. gonna be great here phaser beams coming down people are being burned alive but also we're slashing prices over at kmart keep yeah. going so now people tune in late they don't know that this is yeah. a, a play they're he, hearing in the beginning of the of the broadcast they do make the mention that this is a, a play this is a dramatization this is not you know a real life event but then they go into the whole thing um, there was some people speculate that a lot of people are listening to a more popular radio um, um, broadcast that was going on with Edgar Burton and his ventriloquist. Charlie McCarthy. Charlie Holy McCarthy. shit, Kahuna. Why? <laughs> Why do you know that? It's a puppet. <laughs> <laughs> And he makes an appearance in the first Muppet movie. Oh my god! <laughs> Holy shit! 
Full circle. <laughs> it all comes back to you puppets. Good you almost had an aneurysm oh, there That hurt my side for a second. <laughs> oh, oh. Shit. Yeah, so a lot of people tune in late that they miss the whole early on um, disclaimer that this is really just a, a drama. It's not a it's not a real life event. But it was with L, uh, Wells's um, insistence that the thing was going to kind of drag along a little bit slowly at first and then speed up. So how can we make a 50 minute radio broadcast seem like, you know, hours and hours because you're going to have uh, the the joint chiefs of staff getting together. You got the National Guard coming out to fight the uh, the invasion. You got uh, and what made it real to people is they didn't hear the disclaimer. A lot of people feel they didn't hear the disclaimer. A lot of people feel, well, I heard that, but I still believe the, the story <laughs> anyhow, because so many, so many people are on edge with the way they produce this thing. Um, and they start making mentions of um, actual places like, yeah, now they just landed in Bayonne and uh, oh my God. Let's they, go shoot the water tower. <laughs> Make sure none of them aliens will step foot on this land. Right. And some and, of those and, shots probably landed in your native Jersey city, by the <laughs> way. <laughs> and it was, uh, was suggested by Wells that the guy who was actually the inter, we interrupt this program for this live, you know, bulletin kind of a thing that he listened to, the radio broadcast that was from the Hindenburg disaster. The Hindenburg disaster only oh, happened a year man. before. Oh, that's cool. So we got inspiration. So from he got inspiration from that. Yeah, from the Hindenburg. Holy oh my shit, God. Larry! <laughs> oh, the humanity! Oh, the yeah, humanity! Is. Right? is that what that's from? And yeah. this guy listened another over episode of American and Loser over and over again to that, so that he could really put that inflection into his voice, and and all the other actors were or screaming and, and you know the the sound effects and everything else that people are losing their shit and listening to this and not realizing and then when you start mentioning about oh well we're on the phone right now with the uh with dr so-and-so from the princeton observatory and uh, you know getting his take on that and now we go to the national the new jersey i uh, wasn't the national guard the home guard or something so it, again they couldn't be sued by mentioning the actual That's people right. and now they went into new york and they wiped out new york they were walking across the, the hudson river um, with these hideous monsters from from outer space type of thing that and they said the the phone boards were were lighting up uh the state police had a 40% increase in in calls to the uh, new jersey state police um while the radio production is going on, um, the police start to arrive and they're looking to shut this thing down because people are going ballistic. Mm -hmm. There was also the idea that um, this is a Sunday night broadcast. There's not a whole lot of newspaper reporters who are, as you say, on the beat for a Sunday night show type of a thing. But newspapers were against the radio. So whatever they could do to put down radio was going to better the newspaper uh, people. Mm -hmm. So people like our lose reception. Oh, he's about to come in heavy to William Randolph Hearst. Right. Ooh. Oh yeah. God. So, I mean, he owns a, a nation, newspapers across the nation, but you know, what, Newspapers are now pulling out this story that, you know, people are, um, are this radio broadcast is causing riots. People are in the streets. Uh, 
uh, somebody jumped off the bridge to commit suicide because he thought it was like it was the, Tang all over again. Because he thought um, it was the end of the world. <laughs> um, you know, so they're playing this up the next day in the newspapers, <laughs> big time. That uh, you know, you can't believe what you hear on the radio because see what what Wells just did with this whole war. The he even got a negative comment from uh, in in a public speech about his production of War of the Worlds on the radio by Adolf Hitler. Hitler had uh, less than stellar things to say about old Orson. So yeah, I guess perhaps I, that's why Orson shit on him later in life, too. I think it was a couple of days later, uh, Hitler gives a speech and makes mention about how these stupid Americans are, are panicking in the streets over a radio broadcast. I mean, that, that, that it was, he, was, he was trying to show the stupidity of the Americans for believing what they, what they hear on the radio. Meanwhile, he's the uh, yeah. he's the captain of propaganda. So, talking. So, yeah. I'll tell you what. At an hour twenty-two, I think it's time we get into his seminal work here. Yeah, I'm sorry. Okay, but, uh, relax, dude. You did no, great research as always. Yeah. he's too interested. Now, I don't want to do a two-parter on him. I do not. So I, we're gonna um, we're gonna tell the story correct. And Orson Welles doesn't do sequels. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> holy shit! He's right. Um, <laughs> and we got a, a great guest on hand here too that I, I don't want to finish this up without. So I'm going to. Uh, we're not going to rush through anything, but we are going to be uh, expeditious. Well, let me a, let me just say this and to wrap up. You son he, of a bitch. He does this. <laughs> <laughs> All that. He does this War of the Worlds, and it is like immediately a smash hit the next day that uh, people are looking for interviews mm -hmm. and everything mm -hmm. else that he is now not only, you know, citywide or nationwide he's now worldwide that this young upstart orson wells this 20-something punk kid is has done this tremendous uh orson wells the master bullshit artist. Yeah, right right <laughs> a bullshit extraordinaire type of a thing that uh you know the, the world is his oyster at this particular point in time. That, did they sell copies of like the like? Did they ever like put it to like a like a vinyl at the yeah, time? Yeah, I'd like to hear it if it's out there. I'm sure it is. It's, it's out there. Yeah. His his vault, as we're going to cover in the second half of his life, his vault of things that are either unfinished or never released, is in itself the epitome of loserdom because uh, this guy is like still being hidden from us. We we know everything and nothing simultaneously with Orson. I, I'll say this real quick. If you're listening to this show, like specifically Stu Greenberg, who told us that he likes to go on the elliptical and listen to us, Stu, we're going to kill you if you stay <laughs> on the elliptical right. for this whole episode. So if you're uh, if you're a regular listener of the show or this is your first episode here, in-depth topic, we're not going to skip over anything. That being said, at this point, if you wanted to hit the pause button and come back to it, we're about to dive into a certain town out in California that has a little bit of power, right? And uh, just a little bit. Uh, you know, I'm going to go ahead and say this: uh, Orson Welles. Interesting guy. He's almost like he's a kid from Jersey who comes up with this brilliant thing that he's doing, but he's making big waves only over in Jersey. And all of a sudden, Hollywood comes calling. Right, Dad? Well, let's hope. Almost like, <laughs> almost, almost like maybe like History Channel or Discovery or something taking notice of a little project going on in New Jersey between a father and a son and his high school buddies and, and their handsome producer. Um, so we're going to dive into this one right now. Orson's getting offers, Okay. He's getting offers from a lot of major studios. They want him for the name value as an actor, okay? And Kahuna, you tell me if you got to take breaks or anything, okay? It's all good. Thank you, brother. Um, thank you very much, sincerely. Um, so he's got all these offers coming in. They want him as an actor because he's got name value. Uh, he doesn't want that. He goes, he goes, I'm a director. He, he's convinced, and he says later in his life, he talks about, he goes, I could have had a lot more success had I accepted acting roles more than just, but he, he goes, I don't want your money. I want power. I want the authority on the lot, right? Hmm. He wants to be 
um, the Greg Standal of the career in crime. I am the editor, <laughs> producer. You know, it, you, you took writing ideas from me every now and then. No, but written, I, written by Kevin Burke and Matt Britton. It's, <laughs> that's in the credits. Written um, stone. I can't take credit there. Oh, man. That was uh, – and Matt Britton would be another great guest to have on the show. But uh, Hollywood has come calling now, and he waits it out, and there's this fledgling studio – uh, RKO that you said is not doing well on money, right? That, well, they're not fledgling, but they're struggling. Struggling, struggling. Right? RKO got some pictures. Different RKO, not Randy Orton's finishing move from wrestling. No, no, um, no. I know RKO. Out of nowhere, <laughs> they were early distributors of Disney before Disney decided to go off on <laughs> no shit their own thing. Hmm. You, like you, they distributed Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. No I think, way. Oh, I didn't know that. I, but I, Disney I, always. Yeah, but in the beginning, Disney didn't have a distributor. They they had they well they weren't their own yet. And then I think. Wait, Snow White. No, not Snow White. Well, this is right around Sleeping Beauty. It was they came up with their own distribution house. It might have been. When you hear this next piece of wild, insane shit, there's a couple that they're gonna, you're going to go nuts for. But we're going to move towards bullet points now for the sake of the the, the brevity of the show. Um, <laughs> Orson takes the deal, right? And uh, part of the deal that the studio gets mocked for endlessly. RKO has some stuff going, but they need to bring in a big star that they think is going to bolster their pictures, right? And this winds up becoming a thing where if you weather the storm, right, if you weather the storm, RKO would be the most famous studio on planet Earth. But they they didn't. They wind up screwing up. They caved in. They're getting mocked endlessly because they've just given a huge, record-breaking in some terms, contract to a, an unproven commodity known as Orson Welles. You're bringing the boy wonder in, right? And uh, he has in his uh, contract creative control. Now, uh, Greg, in your mind, what is creative control? Uh, final cut. Exactly. Exactly what he wanted. <laughs> now, in creative control, now a lot of people, just to put it into to, you know, modern uh, terms here, uh, when someone has creative control, uh, a lot of times people do that with characters. Nowhere is that more apparent than pro wrestling. You know who had creative control of his character, Dad? That's right. Hulk Hogan needed to have creative control of his character, and that was means that if if he if you came in and you I said, "I need to Hulk, have the final cut, brother." <laughs> no way, brother. I'm not doing that crap. I'm going to make Citizen Kane, brother. And what you going to do when Orson Welles runs wild on you? <laughs> so he comes in. He signed. They give him final cut. Right. Yeah. It's it's exactly what you want. And he moves in. And uh, he goes over. He's got uh, two projects that he comes up with first that he's working on. Brings. By the way, you want to talk about a loyal guy? Good guy brings all of his Mercury Theater people with him, nice. right? So they're now oh, wow. on the lot, right. all these unknown kids going into work every day, mixing it up. The, the studio people that are the regulars there are like, who these fucking new kids think mm -hmm. they are? Um, now, he comes up with his first uh, project he wants, which is an adaptation of one of the most famous novellas of all time, known as Heart of Darkness, okay? And the actual novella is about uh, a riverboat captain from England who winds up in Africa, and it's his quest to find and, you know, kill, in quotes, an ivory trader named uh, Kurtz, okay? Interesting side note here. That picture uh, gets scrapped because he is playing around with the narrator thing again. So he doesn't want to appear on the film until about halfway through. And the studio's like, we're not making this shit. You can't have the star of the movie only show up halfway through, right? So yeah. they, uh, they completely poo-poo the idea gets destroyed. Uh, that movie later gets made. Uh, instead of Africa and the ivory traders, it gets made into a movie about the Vietnam War, Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now. No way. Took a while to get there, though. Yeah. Huh? yeah, oh, yeah. And, and that movie was plagued with a... Martin Sheen had a heart attack making I, that I movie. I heard that movie had some 
that was it's some issues. Problems. Young Lawrence Fishburne is introducing Charlie Sheen to drugs and Emilio Estevez to prostitutes, right? So <laughs> a different kind of red pill, blue pill back then for old Morpheus. But um, <laughs> um, so anyway, they decide to scrap that one here. Now, we're not going to get political on this one. We're not a political show. But Wells is a well-known, lifelong champion of liberal causes. So Wells jumps with excitement, for, uh, like absolute excitement, at this next opportunity uh, for a movie. And it's going to skewer a, a big political person in power who he deems to be a little bit of a tyrant. Okay? The aforementioned William Randolph Hearst. The screenwriter that comes to him with the film that will become Citizen Kane is a guy by the name of Herman J. Mankiewicz. Okay? Uh, he might be Jewish. Um, he had a hot new screenplay about a topic that was near and dear to his own heart. Mankiewicz, this is exciting. We have a kahuna jaw drop moment every episode. And this one, the, the tension that's building, Greg, is just a beautiful thing. Uh, Mankiewicz, uh, he was an interesting guy. He's about to be a part of Citizen Kane, potentially the most famous and important movie of all time, right? Mm -hmm. Before this, he dicked around with some lesser known projects. He was actually one of the first 10 writers attached to this little movie called The Wizard of Oz. So in Frank L. Baum's book, they don't talk about Kansas a whole lot, right? It's not in the book as much. You told me this, Dad. And um, so now in order to have Kansas show up, Kansas is shown in uh, black and white. And you have the most iconic – I really do think it might be the most iconic scene in film history of when Dorothy steps out of the door and all of a sudden Oz is in color, color. right? All of that invented by Herman J. Mankiewicz. What? Yep. He's the guy who created... Is there any yeah. other liner notes on that one? No. He created... No, he didn't create... He created the idea that Kansas should be black and white oh, and like Oz that should just, be in color. Right. Oh, that... Oh, right. wow. Okay. So Again, this is the 1930s, so I mean, this yeah. is, you know, not the film. <laughs> it was only like 10 years or so that we went to talkies, and but like we're still in black and white, but now we're going new. from black and white to color. And this is the first time that uh, they're going to introduce color by starting the movie in the same old, same old black and white. But, then, but when she steps out of Kansas and into Oz, now she's yeah. in, in full color. Was Oz the first? Uh, yeah. I think that was one of the first. Cause, yeah. It, it was? Greg, correct I'm, me if I'm wrong. I'm not 100%, but I'm 90% sure. That I believe Wizard it was, for, Oz that, was the first. for that particular theater. For, yeah. That's brilliant, though. Yeah. Like, conceptually. It's, well, his movies were so – Mankiewicz's stuff was so good throughout his entire career. This is how good you are. Guy's name is Mankiewicz, right? I made uh, a reference to him being Jewish earlier. Um, his movies were so good that his name had to be taken out of the credits in order to be shown in Nazi Germany, right? That Hitler would not allow – actually, it wasn't uh, – it, wasn't, it was uh, Goebbels, uh, the minister of propaganda over there. Uh, they had Mankiewicz's name removed from the credits before the movies were shown because they didn't want to see how brilliant of a Jewish guy he was. So that's how you know you're good when the, the Germans are like, well, um, not even the Germans, I should be clear, the Nazis. Uh, the Nazis are like, well, we don't, um, I mean, we don't like you, but we like your movies. They're very good. We take your movies, not your name. credits. <laughs> so now his next target, okay, he's, he's not, uh, he, he, at one time, Mankiewicz was in the inner circle of our loser reception for the episode in William Randolph Hearst, who, if you don't know, newspaper magnate, the Rupert Murdoch, uh, George Soros type of his time. He had a, a very famous quote, you provide the pictures, I'll provide the war. So he could sway public opinion. Big and time. we're going to see the absolute full force of his power in the second half of this episode here. Um, so he's going to skewer William Randolph Hearst in this movie called Citizen Kane. 
Now, Mankiewicz used to be in the inner circle, which meant that he got taken to Hearst Castle, which we showed photos of. Yeah. I mean, you've been there. Yeah. Right? Where was it, that at? It's a compound. Tell, uh, give, give him the brief uh, dissertation on the, the mansion to show the guy's wealth and power. Oh, it was just, he was incredibly wealthy and takes this hillside in, in California and turns it into this this palace. Um, hires a, a young uh, unknown, really, uh, female architect, and she designs this a palace. I don't know how else to say it. It's Hearst Castle. I mean, it's yep. uh, it's still there today, and it's a, a major league tourist attraction. Now, it just, say this one part too. You can't drive up there, right? No, you have to really like park across the street, and then they'll take you on their own private shuttle up there. But at one time, this had uh, its own zoo. I mean, it, uh, pools, uh, gardens. Uh, it was it was it. I mean, it was now, it was big time. It, yeah, in the movie, it'll become known as Xanadu. That's what they call it, right, in, in Citizen Kane. Um, but now Hearst is the big swinging dick of America at this point. He can change public opinion based off of, uh, like, you know, whether or not he takes his hat off. It's incredible. Well, a couple other weird things about him. If you do want to know more about him, go into our episode on William Randolph Hearst. I was proud of that one. I'm proud of all of them, but that one was a good one. Um, he is also the reason that uh, his he can write articles that ruin people's lives. We'll cover it on a later episode, but he just... Uh, Annie Oakley got called a, uh, a cocaine addict because he put mention of it in a newspaper once and he had no backing for it. Right. Well, you can't print it if it's not true. Fake news. Trump's not totally wrong there. Right. Uh, um, so uh, he's also the reason that marijuana is illegal. Yep. Right. You know, about the whole that. hump, yeah, yeah. the hemp. Devil's and all, weed. Yeah. Devil's weed. And uh, uh, it's uh, um, what was it? What's the movie? Um, one of you guys will know it. Free for madness. There it is. <laughs> that was all just to suppress minorities, right? That was essentially what he was trying to do. In with that. part, it was also because he had uh, control of uh, the paper business and the hemp business was yep. a threat to his paper mills. That's what so it was. It, it right. always, it, the, the money thing. It all came back to fun. He's right. just a it, villain. a million. Yeah. Right. Very much so. Also, this is Hearst Castle, by the way. This is okay. literally. He's got it up on the screen. A little there. bit of a yeah. stunner. Now, imagine, if you will, Kahuna, okay, you don't really like the guy. But you're trying to get a motion picture made. This guy's got more money than anybody. He's out in California where all the movies are getting made. And he tells you, why don't you come out and hang out with all the upper echelon of Hollywood? Because big name actors and actresses are going out there. You, you take the boat ride, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, uh, if you're, if you're uh, invited, you're going. <laughs> Just no, hold on. Oh, so I got something else I want to keep listening, but I'm curious of what happened. What I'm thinking happened is going to happen. So keep, keep going. Well, uh it's nothing too, too great. We still don't know exactly what happened, but Mankiewicz used to be one of the guys that gets to take these rides, right? Um, and it's uh, he's going out there and hanging out with everybody until he's not. All of a sudden, they don't say what it was, do they? I don't recall I, I, that. I never came up with what the big uh, division what They was had the a falling out. And falling the way out, Hearst yeah. lets you know that you've had a falling out is that you just stop getting invited to his big parties. You're not getting uh-huh. money from him anymore. Hearst decided, uh, you know, it's a, uh, it's almost like one of those fashion people uh, where it's, it's like, you know, uh, almost like a Zoolander where it's like, yes, uh, you're out. That's it. We're right. moving on. You're so, not worthy. Um, so now Mankiewicz decides, and almost because he's a genius, the guy's a genius, right? Um, he starts writing a script that's part tell-all, part hyperbole. Um, this portrayal of Hearst in a film they're going to refer to as Citizen Kane. So there's a little division between uh, Orson Welles and Mankiewicz. They they partner but they butt heads a little bit on which direction everything's going to go in. So Mankiewicz gives him the script and the idea, and Orson Welles gives him 300 pages of notes for changes to make to his script, <laughs> right? Um, neither right. Ma- yeah, neither man is fond of studio notes. <laughs> you ain't kidding, Jesus. dude. You ain't kidding. 
So uh, the two of these guys are, are they're partners that occasionally butt heads. There's a little argument over who, you know, I had the idea and I wrote the original script. Yeah, but the script wouldn't have been shit if I didn't make my changes to it. It's like Matt Damon and uh, uh, Ben Affleck in a pissing contest. All right. Over Goodwill Hunting. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but Affleck was the bomb in Phantoms, yo. Oh, um, my gosh. So, <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, the two guys, they're not friend. Uh, they're, they're friendly, rather, I should. They're, they're working well together because they both hate uh, Hearst. Right. So they're going to go ahead. And uh, the pressure is on now because the first two projects for this contract for RKO Pictures, Morrison Wells, have been scrapped by the studio. So you have final cut. But unless you make something, you can't use that power. So finally, he's ready to go here. Wells uh, reads the script, sends off the notes, and Hearst is about to showcase his absolute villainy. This is a bad look for him because he's not completely an evil man. We covered him pretty well in the episode, but he's got a lot of bad shit he does. So uh, he's about to showcase the full – he goes full Thanos here in trying to destroy this movie. He's bribing uh, people at the studio to burn the script. He's bribing them to burn the dailies when the dailies are coming in on, on film because keep in mind this is all uh, celluloid, right? Uh, he's doing everything that he can in order to try to stop this movie from getting made, which you tell Orson Welles he can't do anything. This – he will outstubborn the most stubborn person on planet Earth, right? <laughs> he has sh he's shown us everything now. Like you just pointed out, what a great thing that you hit on um, the Cradle of Rock. Tell me I can't do a play, I'll turn into fucking street theater, <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. Um, he's doing insane shit here. He now, is Iron Man. <laughs> he <laughs> Wells brings in his very loyal Avengers crew. I'll keep going with that one. Uh, of the people from the Mercury Theater troupe, right? They're now getting ready to film this movie. They film the entire movie. I think it was 10 weeks, right? Uh, I have 10 days, but I think that's wrong. I think it was no, 10 days. No, way. no, yeah. no, no way. especially no back then I think with it was how 10 film... Weeks. 10 weeks sounds right. Mostly actors from uh, his troupe, and he works off him and Herm's combined scripts, and this attracts the attention of a cinematographer in town, and this is exactly why I wanted you on for this episode, Greg Standall. Uh, this guy's name is Greg Toland. You know anything about him? No. And cinematography is not my forte, but I'll, I, I I'll, know, I'll do the best I can. But you're going to fucking shit a brick when I tell you some <laughs> of the right. stuff this guy did. He was a force for innovation in cinematography. He legit invented shots. The idea of deep focus didn't really exist before him. Okay? So he's doing that. They're doing panning moves with the camera. Mm. There's this amazing scene in Citizen Kane uh, when he's running for public office, which is a true thing Hearst did and failed at. And they're zooming in from the back of the crowd and Orson's on stage acting. By the way, he is acting, uh, directing, writing, producing. He's got the ear of Toland. He's learning from Toland as he's, you know, they're experimenting with stuff. Uh, and this It's his show. It is, and it's it's complete Bugs Bunny, like we said, Bugs Bunny playing baseball. But it's Orson Welles showcasing every bit of why he's been called the boy genius his whole life. They got these panning shots coming in from the crowd. There's, what, what's it called when you have a, uh, is it a smash edit? Smash cut? Smash, Smash cut. cut, right. Okay, I'm glad we got these two guys here. <laughs> really. Otherwise, it's uh, it's two guys trying to talk about fucking home improvement. <laughs> so, anyway, so plumbing's important, guys. Uh, <laughs> so, all right, the Smash edit invented uh, in large part by them. There's a lightning crash scene uh, that um, they, they, they're able to break from. They're coming into a window in the Xanadu mansion. Right. And then all of a sudden the smash cut and now they're inside the mansion. It's like shit. Nobody ever saw before. There's these long panning shots of them going up from someone's performing on a stage in an opera. And it goes all the way up into the rafters where you can then see Wells and the, the people. Uh, you know, the, the, he mastered silence, too. There's this amazing shot. My father and I are sitting across from each other at the table. So in, in Citizen Kane, which, by the way, holds up as one of the greatest films ever made. Him and his first wife are sitting near to each other. 
and they can't stop. It's the affectionate honeymoon phase, right? And then they slowly start moving further and further apart at, over at breakfast. The, at, the, yeah. at, the at the table. table at their right. table, right? And then eventually they're both reading different newspapers, not paying attention to each other. And in the final scene, she's reading a rival newspaper to his own paper, to, to Charles Baxter Kane's paper, right? Um, so a, as they're you know reading these two things, Charles Foster Kane, I think, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, so in that scene, not a single word of dialogue is spoken, but it tells the entire story of the failure of a marriage. That's It was never fucking done like that before. So this movie is absolutely groundbreaking in all these different ways. Uh, the genius is at the helm. Tolan's using deep focuses, angles. This is the one I couldn't wait to tell you. Uh, so imagine imagine your parents' dismay if uh, we're, we're shooting something in a, the kitchen at your house, right? Uh, growing up at your, your house in uh, high school. Uh, and we're shooting a scene, and uh, Genius Greg, who uh, you know is behind the camera, says, "For this shot, Burke, you got to be big and imposing. So I'm going to try to get a low angle of you. But I'm in high school, so I'm not very imposing looking." <laughs> <laughs> so, so then Greg goes, "We're going to we're going to mess with the lighting here. We're going to lower the lights in here." That's Tolan saying all this stuff. And then Orson Welles goes, "I need the camera to be lower than the floor." <laughs> well, how are we going to be lower than the floor? Orson Welles grabs an axe, smashes the fucking floorboards. Nice. And they bury the camera in the floorboards to shoot up to make him that much. So all of a sudden, me at five foot nine is as intimidating as the Kahuna walking in and out of places, all right? <laughs> Filling the doorway. Unbelievable, right? So uh, the thing is just unbelievable. All right, it gets uh, it, the movie. This boy genius now has delivered to this day the finest motion picture ever made, right? The finest. It's ranked number one still. Above Gone with the Wind, above Wizard of Oz, and yeah, Mike and Ming, above Star Wars. Jesus, guys, <laughs> give me a break with your lasers. Um, <laughs> it just seems like he's constantly pushing the envelope. Like with Broadway, you know, he, he thought outside the box, brought people outside to the to the big venue. Um, with the radio show, now with his first movie, it's just like he's always just thinking outside the box and finding ways to, you know, do things nobody else was doing. He is avant-garde, man. Yeah. Um, Oh, Kahuna brought it up. There's a photo of it. I'll nice. put that up on the thing. It was unbelievable. He literally just smashed his own set. And I think that's I think that's Toland. And then it's, Wells is behind it's him. Wells behind the, it's Wells at the camera and Toland yeah. behind him trying to figure out the shot. But I love that. They I hadn't invented so, hi-hats yet. That's just something no, put on the ground low. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. They also hadn't invented upskirt um, uh, websites either. So this is still <laughs> safe back then. Like, hey, get Hayworth to walk by, will you? Um but it so, is really a marvel in in like in in actual technical terms of how they made that movie and still what they were study today cuz it really was the start of a whole different way of filmmaking and it is a still that testament to this day so this kid pulls off everything imagine man we sold everybody was like dude you got to get kahuna in here kahuna's going to and then kahuna does everything and more and the studio's like we're not really making a whole lot of money though uh, yeah, but the kids are the goods. We provided you with the goods. Here's what's going on, right? He winds up winning Best Screenplay with Mankiewicz, okay? And they are able to receive the award or whatever. So he's an Academy Award winner. The movie gets released, uh, and the critics are always like, holy shit, this is unbelievable. But as, uh, as us all kids who grew up in Jersey would know, sometimes the critically acclaimed masterpieces in Jersey, you have to go to Montclair to go see, right? Um, so that's because they didn't get big releases. Mm. However, William Randolph Hearst ordered his newspaper just empire, right? right. For lack of a better term, empire. Ed? Yeah, yeah I mean, keep going. He, no, he just owns. He he is uh, newspaper media, printed media. He he is it. 
I mean, this is the guy that was credited with starting the Spanish-American War with Cuba. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> because, uh, again, your comment before about, you know, don't give me the, the facts, just give me the give me the photos and I'll provide the story type of a thing. Well, he, you know, don't let it, don't let the facts get in the way of a good story. Um, so Greg, if we had the best movie ever made and the news, 70% of the newspapers, magazines, radio shows, everything is not willing to even mention us. You can't run an ad for it. You can't do a review of it. Uh, he's again, the guy's trying to say, Hey, burn that shit to the ground. He, the movie gets made and the greatest F you in movie history, I think. All right. Well, off the top of your head, think of another better FU in movie history because there's a lot of good ones, right? Mm-hmm. But I think this is the best one. Uh, Rosebud is the mystery of the entire movie. Rosebud is revealed to be, spoiler alert, 1941. Sorry, guys. Um, Rosebud is revealed to be his uh, Citizen Kane's um, uh, sled from when he was a child. That was his deathbed words, where the, the sled of his innocence that he wishes he could go back to a simpler time. Rosebud to William Randolph Hearst was the affectionate nickname he had for his mistress's pussy that Mankiewicz heard him say at the mansion one time. So they made a whole movie about your girl's pussy. Wow. <laughs> and it was an oh award-winning movie about your girl's pussy. <laughs> and not his, not his wife's, his mistress's. Exactly. Oh Just as a little added. Uh... Can you imagine being Hearst sitting there watching the movie and then at the end just, Rosebud. Like just just being completely. Uh, uh, Wait, did like he had to have seen the movie though, right? Like he was like if he was so enraged I'm sure. by it. I'm yeah, sure he, saw he was it. hitting up studio execs. He was and and by the way, he gets his revenge as we're gonna see in the 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 the, the final bullet points here of his life. We're gonna cover him. You jump in when you got some. No, you I was just gonna research. say uh, when Hearst when he gets wind of of this movie Citizen Kane, he forbids any of his newspapers to put any type of a positive right. spin on no it. no mention. Uh, nobody is allowed that. They would not accept advertisement. Um, they would not accept any type of uh, uh, critical acclaim, nothing that, uh, you know, you're dead to me kind of a thing, that whatever it costs me to put you down, I'm, he's he's going to do whatever he can to And it kind of worked, because it, it didn't well. do so well its initial run. No, it, it did Mixed, uh, the reviews were through the roof, right? And then it wasn't a, a huge success. Now, there's no DVD market back then. There's no coming home to, to watch it at home. Just so the movie gets buried in a vault. French theater, new wave French theater, finds it. They get obsessed with it. It becomes like a masterpiece. And in the 1950s, it gets re-released in America and accepted as the brilliant work that it is. Meanwhile, we spent, as, and I'm going to get the age here. You're always great about this, Kahuna, keeping us on track with the person's age. 35 years old, just made the greatest motion picture of all time in his first try. That's what's yeah. mind-boggling. First Your masterpiece shot. is coming, Greg Standel. You got four years by my count. <laughs> Three. Three? Three. What? You're older than me? I guess so. Am I just figuring this out? <laughs> that is weird. I thought you were a little older than me, too. Uh. I'm getting weird now. I, I keep track because I'll stop after Belushi. I think I'm going to die at 33. Yeah, but I think um, also, too, with uh, Hearst, he also owned uh, quite a few of the theaters that uh, – um, he he forbid the thing to be released to any of the theaters. So it's not only his newspapers that are putting him down. RKO now has this this brilliant uh, masterpiece with no theater houses uh, allowing it to be played. So yeah, very limited uh, release. Yeah, very limited release because of uh, Hearst's uh, Hearst influence on not having it to be released. I'm going to tell Mike and Ming now and our studio audience at home. 
we're going to be hitting two hours today. <laughs> Kahuna, I'm sorry. You you hit a set, you you pull the plug when you have to. You do whatever signals you have to. All right, sorry, my friend. Sleeping right Wait now. a minute. What's up? Citizen Kane was edited by Robert Wise. Makes sense to me. The sorry, that's I'm a film geek. I love that type of stuff. That's People the director. Like that. People... That's the director of West Side Story. Edited <laughs> Citizen Kane. <laughs> And the sound of music. What the fuck? So the genesis of Citizen Kane came from Mankiewicz not being able, not being invited to his to his parties. Yeah. Anymore. So <laughs> always. That's really. Well, that was yeah. the rosebud. Uh, that just yeah. the rosebud or the entire the whole premise. Thing. The whole yeah, movie got written. Yeah, yeah, yeah makes that. sense. Yeah. So don't be a dick. He must <laughs> have some good parties. He's pissed off. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> it's um, as we're gonna keep going here now. We hit at thirty-five. Now he doesn't clash with every you know person in power. He's actually great friends with FDR. Did FDR fundraisers and stuff like that. And uh, Orson Welles actually is, by the way, a magician as well. Literally a magician in his field, but practices magic his entire life. Okay? And he was performing magic for the troops and everything, too. So it, th this gets it. We're going to hit bullet points here because we have to, but it's good shit worth noting. So uh, he becomes great friends with FDR. FDR once makes a comment at a fundraising dinner that Orson Welles and FDR are the two best actors in America. <laughs> All right? Uh, you know, little jokes here. Roosevelt's, they're, they're funny people, you know, as we, we mention on the show all the time, don't fuck with TR. Shout out to Chris Covert for that artwork he did for us, by the way. Um, but uh, post-Citizen Kane, RKO has now won Oscars. The critics are saying this is the studio. This is the Fox searchlight, you know, before uh, all that other stuff, right? But they're not bringing in the money they wanted, mostly because of that pressure from Hearst. So now additional pressure from Hearst makes them renegotiate Wells' contract. What's he lose, Greg? The final cut. It's gone, baby. He ain't getting it back either. Now, it doesn't seem like a big deal at the time, but that proves to destroy Wells' career for the rest of his life. His next film is, by Hearst's admission, his personal favorite. You got something, LP? No. Okay. You looked, you, you looked adorable just now. You're like, <laughs> I've got a little something to fuck your world up, Kevin. <laughs> so Hearst got his payback a little bit. He's starting to, and okay. it's going to keep going. And this, this literal hatchet job, when they, they destroy him is unbelievable. That's why we can't, you can't skip over parts of this guy's life. There's no parts to skip. Um, his next film is one of his personal favorites. Okay. I think it was called the Magnificent Ambersons, right? Yeah. Um, he was excited because he wanted to just direct now. He didn't have to act in this one. Acting was agreements that he made to appease the studio heads. A lot of the people that were in um, Citizen Kane and the, uh, the Ambersons we're go right back to that uh, Mercury Theater group, oh, yeah. too. So imagine this guy that you're so, putting up with shit at 4 a.m., right. and now he's got you in the best movie ever made, followed by another opportunity to be in another one of his movies. And at the time, too, a lot of these uh, actors um, were really under contract with the studio mm -hmm. so that you couldn't go work at a different studio without the consent of RK, well, in this particular case, RKO. And, but a lot of these actors made major motion pictures um, by being lent out by RKO to various other studios. A different, yeah. Yeah, but Orson Welles was was true to his people kind of a thing that he, he kept them uh, he kept them busy. Good guy that way. Yeah. Now, he pays for that, too, because uh, he's making this Magnificent Ambersons movie. He's got a lot of edits. Now, imagine, Greg, that uh, you are making uh, you know a, a project, Okay, and you have a, a clear vision for it, and you have edits that have to be made, and then Kahuna and uh, I'll, I'll play. I'll play it to both of you guys. You guys are both the guys in the industry here. You know exactly what you want to do here. You're getting a little bit of pushback from the client or the studio, whatever, and then uh, all of a sudden you get a phone call from Elon Musk. 
You taking that phone call? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the Elon Musk of his day would be Nelson Rockefeller. Nelson Rockefeller personally tells Orson Welles it is his patriotic duty to take a million dollars and go down to Brazil and make a documentary-type fiction movie about a festival going on in Rio de Janeiro, right? So Orson Welles is like, well, okay, I, I guess you know I'm friends with FDR, so this must be something for the war effort. FDR had a thing called the good neighbor policy where we're trying to have good relations with Latin America and South America, you know, so let's go ahead and go down to Brazil. So he's making this film. And he's sending back the, the dailies as they're seeing it. And the studio is assassinating him. He's got no money, by the way. There's no salary for him. He's just given a million dollars and told, go spend it. It's like, uh, um, you know, it's almost like a, a sitcom. <laughs> uh, not sitcom, but a rom-com. Like, go, go down to Brazil and spend all this money making a movie. Okay. Yeah, but, then, but also back then, a million dollars for a film was plenty of oh, yeah. money to go make what you wanted to make. Especially Which comes considering- back to bite him. Really, it, yeah. Especially considering Citizen Kane was made for eight over eight hundred thousand dollars. No shit, I didn't even know the budget on that. Thank you. <laughs> um, so the mill uh, gets uh, he's get literally he's told go spend a million dollars down in Brazil. He's sending stuff back, and some studio people are like ah, you got too many black people in the movie. We're trying to showcase uh, Latin culture, not black culture, and you got these people dancing around. There's like this voodoo shit, and what's going on with these witch doctors you're showcasing? And Wells is like, I'm making, it's about the festival. I'm, I'm showing you the people down here. And uh, one of the things that he said was most damning about when he realized that this was a, a, you know, this was a little bit you know, more suspicious than it seemed was that they were watching everything without the music that he wanted to sync to it. He wanted to sync samba music to the Brazilian festival. You know what I mean? Yeah. Kind of like, you know, if for the St. Patrick's Day parade, you, you're going to have a little Irish music to it, right? To give it some authenticity. And they didn't allow him to do that. Um, Wells is probably dead um, without ever having seen uh, his own dailies from this because they they were absolutely assassinating him. Um, while he's away, um, by the way, just his own personal life here, Virginia is now, um, uh, he's left Virginia, who had his, his first daughter, right? His first wife. He has, yeah, his first wife and his first daughter, uh, you know, the baby mama, whatever you want to call it. Um, and he's now in a courtship with a Mexican actress uh, named Dolores Del Rio. Okay, that's his personal life. Not known to be a family man, right? So now he's down in Brazil, hanging out and everything like that, trying to make this movie for a million dollars, getting screwed around by the studio, who, while he's out of the country, re-edits his film, The Magnificent Ambersons, against his wishes, and uh, releases the film without him having any control over it whatsoever. Then, from I wonder that, if that was part of the plan. Before he left for Brazil, he left extensive notes as to how the Ambersons was to be edited. And it was completely Clearly disregarded. Yeah. Like, imagine if, uh, like, a seminal scene in a movie, you know what I mean? Like, imagine if they wrote out uh, Samuel L. Jackson's final diner scene in Pulp Fiction. That's the level of, like, just chainsaw Butchery. they took to this movie. They ruined his movie, right? Then, uh, when he came back, they sat there like, ooh, the Ambersons didn't really do so good, and, um, you know... Uh, you did go down and blow a million dollars of our... So now wow. they're telling other studios, they're like, this Wells guy, yeah, I mean, he's good, but he just wasted a million dollars and came back with nothing. So they assassinated his career, and they the idea is that it has the fingerprints of Hearst all over it. I bet it does. So um, that's, they, they wind up getting rid of him. So the swarm of bad press now allies, uh, allows RKO to make their move. They fire Orson Welles. And uh, Wells, it, later in his life, was still saying, "Goes I personally, I've never recovered from that attack." Yeah, and the bad press is press is being controlled by who? William 
Randolph Hearst. You, you don't fuck with Hearst. Uh, yeah. It's the moral of the story. He's got um You don't fuck with two people on the show. You don't fuck with Hearst and you don't fuck with TR. It's uh yeah, that, that's why Orson's so um endearing though, is because he does he doesn't back down from these fights ever. Um and he he didn't let it he it ruined his career that way, but you're gonna see he's still always relevant and he's still even more revered. Like in the during their time, they probably thought Hearst was a pretty good guy and that Orson Welles was a little bit weird. And then as time has come out and we know more information, we're like, Orson Welles was the guy you want to have a drink with, and Hearst is probably a piece of shit. Um, I'll say that, and then, you know, we'll get sued by the Hearst family or something. But <laughs> I'd like to see it. No, no, actually. <laughs> well, Patty, Patty Hearst has got her own problems. But yeah, well, we'll get That's to her for another episode. episode. Was that his daughter? <laughs> yeah, uh, granddaughter. granddaughter. She'll be another episode here. So uh, it's not all bad for Orson, right? It's not all bad. <laughs> we're about to get to something good for you, LP. Yeah. Wells is performing patriotic duties overseas for the troops, doing more radio productions, creates now the Mercury Wonder Show. While working there, his flirtatious nature and his still ever genius, he's still got a good rep in Hollywood in terms of the actors wanting to work with him because everything the guy does is gold. Um, he happens to catch the attention, affection, uh, of what would become his second wife and the mother of his second child, Dad, in 30 words or less, in a tweet. <laughs> <laughs> Who is Rita Hayworth? A knockout. Smoke show. A smoke we taught, show. We taught you this. Big time smoke <laughs> show. All right, as I said earlier. Cooney, you want to bring a picture of her up so we can prove it to Greg and you? Uh, um, Thank you. The pinup girl of, of the Second World War, if you will, that every GI in his locker or footlocker or whatever. The, the way we stare at Scarlett Johansson now is probably how they yeah, stared at her back then. She was, uh, she was a... She's beautiful by today's standards. Sure is, bud. Um, now, so he is now flirting with her, and um, they go ahead, and he, he bragged later that he was uh, her longest tenured husband and relationship. Um, they had a kid. I think they were only together like four and a half years. Um, but uh, a lot of people are very eager to work with him. Now, Orson is starting, his reputation in Europe is picking up steam here. They're like, oh, uh, Wells, avant-garde, the brilliant American, the boy wonder. Hated that name later in life, by the way. But in Europe, he's still a celebrated artist that people are eager to work with. Unfortunately, uh, he gets a divorce from Rita Hayworth shortly after you know the four-year mark, if you will, and he begins a passionate affair. This poor guy, Dad, just can't seem to, just can't seem to be okay. He's got real struggles with women. He goes from a, a beautiful Chicago socialite to a uh, Mexican uh, aristocrat actress to Rita fucking Hayworth. Uh, he now bounces back. Maybe you'll agree with this one, Greg. An Italian countess. Italian countess would be a pretty good one to bounce back into. With the blue blood, <laughs> her name's uh, Paula Mori, right? And her parents demanded that the two get married after they found out that Orson and her were having an affair. This would make her Wells' third wife, who was also the mother of his third child. There's a rumor that there's a fourth child out there and a son who looks ridiculously like him. Like it's it's messed up. You were asleep for that part, I think. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, but he's a British filmmaker and he looks exactly like him. Uh, Orson would often have to fund his own projects. Uh, because no one wanted to work with him studio-wise. The yeah. studios blackballed him, but the industry loved him. That makes any yeah, sense. Yeah, he, he, does, he does good work, but uh, again, I think there's a fear factor of uh, you don't want to be too closely associated with Orson Welles because some of that bad juju from uh, William Randolph is going to rub off on you. Indeed. Now, uh, he winds up, while in Europe, makes a, a British movie that becomes his biggest success uh, commercially, Okay. Um, and it's interesting because he is not allowed to have any role other than an actor. He plays a character known as Harry Lyme in a movie called The Third Man, which is considered 
classic film noir. You know what I mean? Like detective walks into you know, the shady room and cigarette smoke and right. you know dangerous dames and shit. And uh, he makes the movie. And it's ironic that that's his biggest success because he hates the character that he's playing. He goes, oh, that character is a real piece of shit. But that was the one that American audiences and European audiences were like, this guy's amazing. I can't wait. And he's modeled off of everything. Every sly, shadowy figure that's, you know, the mastermind at the very end. Kevin Spacey and The Usual Suspects based heavily off of him, right? Um, he makes this movie. It's a massive success. But he's so broke and needs money for his own projects that he takes guaranteed money instead of a pay uh, percentage of the success of the movie mm. and winds up dicking himself over, just like the U.S. women's soccer team. Um, but Jesus. <laughs> they did. They should have bet on themselves. Um but anyway, uh, he's got that going on here. I think that's interesting that he's finally got success and he doesn't like it in that regard. Uh, he also says that he had a lot of roles behind the scenes with stuff, but the, uh, he was never allowed to get credit for it. So again, his genius is being unrecognized. So Wells uh, then has to make a movie with his estranged wife. You ever go through a bad breakup, Greg? Yes. <laughs> you, would you want her on the set of a movie you're directing nope. for the next <laughs> couple? Nope. <laughs> it's a hard no. They, they were friendly. No. They were... <laughs> <laughs> Capital letter, exclamation point. They were friendly, all right? Rita Hayworth and, and Orson were friendly, but they were no longer together, and they made a movie called The Lady from Shanghai. Now, I'm going to describe... Uh, the movie's not well-received, by the way, and like almost all of Wells' work is now considered a masterpiece. That's, that's how screwed this guy was in his contemporary time. Um, he has an iconic scene in this movie that as soon as I describe it to you guys, you will be able to name countless references to it, okay? So... You're a comic book guy, right, Kahuna? Mm -hmm. Right? Uh, animation, everything. You're, you're, you're a wealth of info on that one. Greg, gangster movies, uh, anything, really. I mean, just film in general. So you guys are going to... You'll like this. So at the very end of the movie, um, there's a shootout, right? And the, uh, the, the woman, played by Rita Hayworth, has a gun. And she goes okay. to shoot a guy that she's chasing, right? Um, and uh, it's in a mirror funhouse. And now the guy's talking to her, mocking her as she's holding the gun towards him, saying, are you sure you're shooting the right me? And there's a million different mirrors on every different wall. And she starts shooting, and she's shooting the wrong mirrors. And every time she shoots, the guy appears in a different mirror. And is she actually going to get him, or is she going to get the mirror? And there's uh, literally like a weird slide Orson Welles falls down, and there's a giant clock that he's spinning around at some point. And they don't know what's going on at all until the final scene when they see the guy finally grab his chest that finally... She hit meat instead of mirror. Everything, right? Kahuna's got his hands up, and he's got the—he's got what they call it the—they uh, they call it the depressed cobra. That's the look when you go like that. <laughs> That's every sports fan when you just blew a fourth quarter lead. Talk to me, Kahuna. What, oh, do, you, what do you got? Uh, the big—this is going to sound kind of crazy—but one of the biggest ones that comes to my mind is actually Batman the animated series. They reference that to a T. Nice. In one of the episodes where it's—it's it's about a this actress who is stuck looking like a child and she and she's cornered in a, in a fun house or in this film soundstage that's full of mirrors and she's trying to shoot a Batman. But like, it's, it's a crazy scene because it's her also going through the gamut of why she's going crazy. <laughs> but like, I always thought that that was just a cool scene, but then I'm like, Oh my God, that's, that's a reference. And then I feel terrible that, about this second one because it's in the new Freaking Scooby-Doo movie. <laughs> <laughs> Little Raggy, Orson Welles references. <laughs> Between Scooby-Doo and Dick Dashardly. Oh, God. I, I hate myself for that one. But the Batman one, I, I will take 
that's full been, credit for did it. that scene resonate for you at all? I've Rick? seen that done at least five or like six, seven times yep. in, in different movies. Like I think they just did that in uh, that movie Us. Um, really? Yes, Jordan they Peele. did. Like she goes into that fun house and she's that happens in there, right? That's that, the, the Jordan Peele movie, right? Yeah, yeah. and not as good as Get Out, by the way. Mm-hmm. It, it chapter two, too. They no do shit. that as well with Pennywise. My yeah. first, re- I thought that MacGyver invented that personally. Now I find out Orson Welles did it. <laughs> <laughs> so again, the guy, everything he touches is gold here. So he makes that movie with his estranged wife. And uh, now he goes on to the next project. Get this one, all right? This is where he's going to be in trouble by the bloggers in 2020. Uh-oh. This is where the Brooklyn Coffee House baristas are going to march against him. Every good thing he did. Oh, I don't care that he made Voodoo Macbeth. I don't care that he was revolutionary. <laughs> okay, get with the times, buddy. He played Othello in a European production of Othello that was shot in, I think, Croatia and Italy, right? And he played Othello. What do you know about Othello, Kona? Nothing. Black guy, right? He's known as the Moor of Rome. So he's, he's a Moor from like... Uh, uh, I think it's in Sicily that, that, that everything's saying. So the Moors came in and they had like an Arab look to them. So Orson Welles puts on blackface in order oh. to play this character. But he plays it with, uh, he's compelling. It's it's meant to be uh, an honor and an, an homage, if you will. And he's trying to make sure that his star power is the reason this fucking movie gets made. All right? So he's doing it for all the right reasons, but he's going to wind up, he'd be taken down by the beautiful bloggers of Brooklyn. Jesus. <laughs> you know? It's annoying, man. Uh, you got to put some perspective into these things. It's not Jimmy Kimmel doing Carl Malone on The Man Show, all right? Um, this is, uh, it, it's also wild, too, because uh, as the productions continue to grow and as he's boozing nonstop, uh, the handsome man that Kahuna showed us in the cinematography thing in the ground is right. now blossoming into a Dom DeLuise type looking yeah. character. He's becoming Uncle Buck before our very eyes. Oh Kahuna. no. <laughs> right? So he, uh, in, in his latest years, his final years, I should say, he approaches uh, maybe even over 400 pounds dead. Is that right? Uh, it's a big boy. I think he's been getting close to that. He, yeah, it's definitely, and by the way, smokes cigars every T he's smoking a cigar on TV. That's how old some of these, these references are for him. Uh, now, when he returns to the United States, he's showing his uh, his love of magic and all these other things he's talking about. So he, he's, he gains weight and loses weight all the time. He's taking like a lot of trim spa type products <laughs> and going on crash diets to try to keep it under. And he winds up on mom, one of mom's favorite TV shows, playing a magician with, uh, you know, for friends of his who had their own company called, uh, uh, what was it, Desi Productions? Yeah. So, oh, uh, Lucy. Uh, Lucy Desi Productions. Yeah. Yep. So uh, he's on I Love Lucy. He's on it yep. he's been Orson, in that Orson Welles is, a, is one of the he's a magician right. and I think he's like throwing knives at Lucy while she's on like a spinning wheel in oh, the background oh, yeah yeah it's like yeah. a famous moment in that yeah, show yeah that's Orson Welles bro hmm. um, so studios may be objecting to working with Orson but the actors certainly don't Welles has these failed projects that win awards still they're not really failed projects then are they you know, and just stuff that remains in the vault for the time being, basically. It's like, yeah, it's like if you work with Orson, because early on Scorsese was uh, a bad guy in the eyes of the Academy, right? But if you worked with him, you got to do these amazing projects, right? So a lot of that stuff's happening with Orson Welles, where the actors are recognizing that this guy's good for my career, that it's a, a, a rub of excellence, if you will, right? Yeah. So uh, one guy uh, who's a big fan of his is uh, a guy that's going to be cast in a movie coming up called Touch of Evil. Now they call him up one day and they say, hey, we just got the, the big bad guy, the heavyweight bad guy, is going to be played by Orson Welles. He's only going to be the actor, though. Don't worry, but we cast him as the main bad guy because he looks like a brutal enforcer, like the kind of guy you'd send to go collect, uh, you know. Uh, Luca Brasi. Yeah, yeah. Luke, oh, perfect <laughs> reference. Luca Brasi, there you go. 
So um, he's filling out this role perfectly, right? He's going to show up as like a tough looking gangster. They gave him this gross beard. I mean, he's he's an intimidating looking guy. And uh, the one of the lead actors in the movie is Charlton Heston, right? And Charlton Heston's on the phone with uh, the studio, and they're just like, oh, yeah, uh, well, we got to find someone to direct. And he goes, well, why don't you let Orson direct it? He's a pretty good director. And Charlton Heston, that's like Leo DiCaprio saying, bring in Scorsese. I'll call him, you know? <laughs> and so they go ahead and they get uh, Orson Welles in on this one. Orson Welles, this one hurts the most. Orson's got this reputation, completely false, that he goes over budget, takes too long, right? Because Othello, by the way, they, they blamed him for taking uh, four years to make because he had no budget, so he had to stop shooting and start shooting it. Go to yeah, he would stop shooting until he could raise and mm -hmm. find mo money from some other fi financier, and uh, you know, yep. that he was doing it all. He was raising the, he was the producer, the director, and everything else, and also uh, trying to raise the money at the same time. And they'd screw him over. That's all. All you have to do is say, uh, like, th th there's always that line I talk about whenever they they praise Ric Flair as the 16-time world champion in wrestling. Like we get it, wrestling's you know scripted or whatever, but it, it's you know this I thought was interesting logic. Ric Flair, the 16-time world heavyweight champion. Someone goes, well, that means he lost it 16 times too. You know, what I mean? you can take, you can piss on an accomplishment with ease. It's easier to be a critic than a creator. Am I right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry, we're wrapping up, brother. Um, no, don't worry. So he now proves to the studio he has to prove himself against false allegations. Right? He under budget and on time produces them dailies that the studio every day for this movie touch of evil starring him as the bad guy and and charlton after he rewrote the script himself gets rave reviews from the studio they're like this is fantastic then they uh fire him from post-production don't allow him to be involved with anything from it there and they tell him yeah you're done you're really just an actor on this one and he responds by writing them a 68 page essay detailing every note and in it, he goes, I am aware this movie is no longer mine, but I refuse to let, you know, I, like, I will work with you on making it the best of what it can be. So it was, it was like, listen, you guys absolutely just shoved a giant fist up my ass, but I'm going to help you with it anyway. No, oh, wow. So uh, he's, he's working with them, you know what I mean? And uh, so there's a director's cut of this version, right? Um, and that director's cut follows his 60-page notes, right? That movie is considered a masterpiece they say it's his best film it is the perfect noir movie right so uh, everything humphrey bogart a touch of evil yes a touch of evil and it is regarded as an absolute masterpiece and all the stuff that they did like little things like put the, the title up front it blocked out certain things in the shot that wind up becoming important to the movie later so the own studio that's now making the decisions here doesn't understand the movie that they're fucking up it's really it's heartbreaking because again that's something that doesn't come into you know he doesn't get credit for that until so late in his life that it almost didn't matter anymore yeah and uh i mean he's just it, it, it's absolutely brutal um now this next part i got to get into here real quickly um <laughs> the original version i think the quickly quickly went, yeah ago. we're in joe rogan territory <laughs> now. preface with the quickly however <laughs> i'll say this i'll say this friends I am on the last page of my notes. <laughs> yeah. We're going to wrap up soon. Uh, I, I, I'll tell you what, I'm not even going to apologize anymore because if I skipped over anything here, then we would be doing a disservice to the show. Now, poor Greg Stanley didn't know that before we it's raped right. his entire yeah, Monday. <laughs> Sucks being him. <laughs> so, good news is Greg's coming on board now. He's going to be the Mankowitz to my Orson Welles. Okay. <laughs> <That's it. laughs> 
Um, but uh, hope you don't have a hearse to worry about. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're looking at him. <laughs> um, yeah, he's behind the board. <laughs> oh shit. Orson uh, gets this rebound in popularity, though, Cahoons. It's pretty cool. So he gets to rehab his image a little bit. All of a sudden, it's like... This well, is like the 60s now, right? 60s, 60s into the 70s. the 70s. Yep, he's showing up. He's doing the roasts. Um, and everyone's like, man, he is just a great guy. He's funny now. He's given great interviews. He's rehabbed his image in a lot of ways. He seems like a decent guy. Like He doesn't sound oh, totally. like, like an asshole. He's just yeah. passionate and kind of got boned, but... And again, not a good family man. We cover that part because yeah, and uh, I think a lot of the unfinished stuff that still might be in a vault someplace. Um, I think he was such a perfectionist mm. that he wouldn't allow it to be finished because it really wasn't to the caliber that he was seeking himself personally. One film was delayed because he admired the uh, video editor so much because the video editor had his same passion for precision and stuff like that that he went over budget because it would take him days to edit a single scene. So Wells loved it. He goes, ah, oh, this guy gets it, right? But then that guy also screwed him over because your attention to detail fucked you. Right. So uh, his one of his last major films is a movie called, this one, this actually should creep you out, Greg, as a filmmaker, um, Chimes at Midnight. It is considered to be his masterpiece. His abs- People who were Wells fans, because he had this budding subculture of fans that would go see it, when they saw that it got a theater release, they would go see it multiple times a night because they knew that it was going to get taken away at any moment, right? And they knew that it, there was a good chance you'd never be able to own it. This is still true. There, I found out recently, as of like 2015, I think, a director's cut became available in the UK on Blu-ray. But to this day, no one knows who actually owns the movie because he, Wells had a problem. He used to finance movies through some... You know, when you get take the studios away, you know that the term that it's better the devil you know than the devil you don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, when you take away the devil you know, now you got to deal with the devil you don't know. And uh, one of his films got destroyed in terms of uh, or scrapped almost entirely because he got involved with some millionaires from a country. Dad, you want you remember what country it is? No, I don't. Yeah, he got involved with a little group uh, over in Iran during the overthrow oh, of the Shah. Right. Yes. So when your financiers' heads are bobbing up and down on a street, <laughs> I don't know if we're going to be able to finish production on time. Right. Orson right. Welles, be damned. <laughs> yeah. Um, wow. But, but Chimes at Midnight, yeah, the yeah. ownership is still under contest. Uh, it's being contested. It's a beautiful black and white movie. He's like 300-something pounds in it. They say it's be- you cry watching the movie, and then you laugh, and then you cry again. It's... The, it is the exact line from Orson Welles was if I had to pick a movie to get, in, to get into heaven based off of, I would offer the Lord Chimes, uh, what was it Chimes at Midnight? That was his favorite movie. The guy who made Citizen Kane is saying, I mean, it's good, but have you seen it? <laughs> yeah, I was only 20. I was only in my 20s when I did Citizen Kane. Exactly. This is good. So he's doing these now in order to keep his, uh, his funding, if you will, he's got to do these. Uh, um, you know, wine commercials, right? He shows up smoking cigars, uh, doing his, um, you know, late night sh- appearances, the roasts, uh, anything he can be on, really. But people are loving him, and he goes to these lecture circuits attended by film students, right? And what did Kahuna say earlier? It's more important to make things and fail, right? Yeah. That's exactly what Orson Welles said when, don't study my movies, go make your own. What yeah. the hell are you doing? You know, it's kind of crazy because you brought up the, he would go talk to at colleges about his films and mm-hmm. stuff like that. You know who sat in on one of them and famously put it on record that he did? Uh-oh. John Carpenter. 
No shit. John Carpenter was a huge Orson Possibly Welles. my favorite director, he, actually. One of mine, too. He's a huge Orson Welles fan. But he, he, he specifically stated he sat in on a talk where Orson was talking about his film history. Oh, my and God. Then, that was that was when he was at U uh, USC or something like that. I think it was that school, and then a few years later, Halloween. Quick note, by the way. So Halloween, amazing. My favorite is obviously uh, Escape from New York. Snake. Yeah. Um, quick side note. So USC has a masterful program. Another masterful program that was very. I'm, I'm going to say was helpful to you, Greg. Was uh, New York Film Academy, right? Mm-hmm. Which Greg cast me as a cop in one of his short films. Yeah. I played an NYPD cop. I'm not saying I was convincing, but um, that uniform was. Uh, it, <laughs> <laughs> no, you did a good job. I stood. You can't play the part. You can dress the part. I stood out. He in the looked hallway. like a New York cop. He really did. did. I stood out in the hallway waiting for my my scene to get brought in, and uh, the neighbors like, Every, "Everything okay out here? Are we, are we being like, there's a Spanish guy. Like, am I being too loud?" <laughs> and I was like, "No, you're okay, man. I was 19 playing a cop." Um, but uh, so, fun fact that you and I talked about too. If you want a little lose reception, and as we wrap up on Orson, um, New York Film Academy is uh, in a certain building, right, Greg? The Tweed Hall. It's the oldest building in Union Square, yeah. As in... Oh, my God. Boss <laughs> Tweed. That's right. As they told me that one day. I was like, oh, that's Tammany kind of Hall. Yeah. Three-part trilogy, guys. That is our... Lose that's our reception. masterpiece, by the way, um, is, is Tammany oh, Hall, if you want to listen to it. Um, in, in summation, <laughs> if you have anything else, uh, you're getting ready to have the time to jump in here. Um, just going back to uh, the Mercury Theater... Uh, when they did War of the Worlds, one of the points that I forgot to mention was they did that on October 30th. So it's the day before Halloween. So everybody was like, I guess, in a, in a spook show type of a thing. Quite the goosey night right, prank, right. if you and, will. And all the, uh, all the hubbub that took place because of uh, War of the Worlds. Orson Welles said, well, you know, it's really nothing more than a radio show, and we, we told people that it was going to be a drama right from the get-go. It's just kind of like putting a sheet over your head and yelling boo at somebody. <laughs> well, <laughs> he, he did a whole lot more than that, but, you know, he tries, he tried to put it down because I think at that I mean, in the immediacy of it was um, they were afraid of being, uh, you know, arrested and dragged into court and sued and everything else but uh, and you can talk more fondly about it later and, and i did have a another jersey connection with that whole thing because when they did war of the worlds uh, for cbs they didn't have a sponsor which was one of the reasons why typically radio shows at that time at the midpoint at the half hour point they would you know go to the sponsor and then they would re-announce that this is only a dramatization it's not you know, mm-hmm. real real world uh, on time um, type of a thing. But because they didn't have a sponsor, they didn't have that midpoint break. It didn't happen until like 40 minutes into the show. So people that would be accustomed to, there's got to be a commercial break here some, somewhere. Along <laughs> <the line. laughs> it never happened. So it's like, holy shit, this is really is happening. After the War of the Worlds took place, there was all kinds of people offering to be a sponsor and uh, the radio hour then took on um it came sponsored by uh the it became known as the campbell playhouse as in campbell soup as in camden new jersey uh campbell whoa campbell soup headquarters was in camden new jersey so wow another jersey connection 
But uh, yeah, they went from the Orson Campbell. Wells in Jersey, man. The Campbell, Jersey's the, Campbell the center Playhouse. of the universe. That's the, yeah. front, that's the unfortunate Playhouse. Truth. And then, then it would, became RKO Studios and just onward and upward from there. But uh, he definitely uh, made, a, made a name for himself with War of the Worlds. Well, uh, here's where we get to the, the last line of his life here, if you will. Um, all these late night appearances, all this other good stuff. The Academy Awards that had once uh, made all the extras and stagehands uh, block voting to allow Citizen Kane to receive more awards. There was literally a conspiracy to make sure that they only won for best screenplay, right? Because uh, that was undeniable what the screenplay was for the time. But everything else, all the technical achievements that we talked about earlier, he didn't really win any awards for that because the Academy wouldn't let him. So that same Academy, who uh, then later on decided to start recognizing Scorsese as the best, um, they eventually uh, uh, gave him a Lifetime Achievement Award. And Orson Welles was too angry, embarrassed, and hurt to go receive it. So he made John Huston, uh, his friend, pick it up for him and bring it to him in Ireland. Right? So he now gets his uh, Academy Award. Um, he's, still he's still trying to get funding for movies made. He has at least 16 films and projects that are unfinished that remain in vaults. Wow. Um, yeah. And uh, there's a line at the end here that will explain to you just how much uh, of, of the projects were his true children. But uh, he then goes on October 9th, 1985. Orson gives this insanely memorable interview, of which you can watch to this day, too, on uh, the Merv Griffin show. Uh, we watched it on YouTube. Uh, in it, he showcased uh, his lighthearted nature. He's making good jokes. He has a joke about how I love Hollywood. It's just never been reciprocal. <laughs> you know, pretty good line. Um, and then he uh, he talks about uh, honestly about his failures, his successes, and then even makes sure to mention by the but around this time, by the way, he is uh, an old man, uh, severely overweight, and still like we said, banging a Croatian model because she goes, no one has ever looked at me the way Orson looked at me. Um, so. And she remains like his caretaker, you know, uh, uh, for his affairs and everything like that as well to this day. Um, so imagine that that's how much that woman loves you, that you can still, in the public TV interview for a national audience, mention how much you still love Rita Hayworth and how lovely and fond you are of her, right? You talked about wow. your ex a lot. Did you know that? <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, he, he says all that stuff. He's got dozens of projects to finish. And after the interview, he uh, returns home. Uh, gets behind the typewriter, starts working as always, and his chauffeur finds him dead the next day. So his funeral uh, saw the first time in their entire lives that all three of his daughters were in the same place at the same time. Okay? The that, first time? The first the time. First That's time. a daughter by Virginia Nicholson, the Chicago socialite, a daughter by Rita Hayworth, okay, um, and then a daughter by the Italian countess, okay, Paula Mori. So uh, all three of them are now finally together here, at their father's funeral. That's the first time they're all in the same room together. Um, Orson Welles is still regarded as the absolute master of film, TV, radio, artistic expression. His films are still kept in uh, many capacities as unreleased, like you said, Dad, sometimes by his own choosing or because there's not enough of them to really release, and are kept in vaults. Uh, he is studied endlessly by almost every major film school and every major film program. Uh, and Citizen Kane remains the number one most important film ever made in the world, and most people don't even know why. And that is why, two hours later, <laughs> <laughs> I'm 
I'm going to go ahead and as we're wrapping this up, I got to say thank you to the Kahuna who put in some OT today, baby. All right, but I knew this topic would be one that interested. It's you. all good, man. I the, the minute you said Orson Welles, I was like, oh, we are not doing. Yeah, it on you canceled. Like, <laughs> yeah. I was like, but because it, his his whole life is a is a story, man. Absolutely. It's, and that quote that you said at the beginning really plays a we're, part. We're going to end with that. Yeah. <laughs> go for it, man. No, I didn't cut you off. No, like I mean, that's really that's really it. It's just, and I don't even want to rank him on the on a loser scale, man. Like it's just kind of like he was a genius. It's like the worst case scenario for being a genius in Hollywood. It's like you get to do what you want, but then everyone badmouths you because they don't like the subject matter. There's a Satchel Page comparison I'll make. That Satchel Page, another episode we did, uh, potentially the greatest pitcher in baseball history, but had to play most of his career in the Negro Leagues. Right. So he never got to showcase his brilliance on the national stage until much later in his career. So similar to Orson, where the everything the guy does is magic, but there's powers at B that keep him, you know, right. contained and everything. So um but uh as we're wrapping up here, I gotta say thank you to the Kahuna. Thank you to Mike and Ming for not uh, going nuts on this. Maybe you will, I don't know yet, but I thanked you publicly, so be cool about it. Um thank <laughs> so you to easy. thank you to good old Greg Stanley. Where can people find please promote your company? And then also anything else you want to mention, too. And I'm really excited that you came in today, buddy. Sure. Thanks for having me. So my company is New Cape Pictures. You can go to newkpictures.com. You can see some of the work we've done. And my and the Instagram and social is New Cape Pictures. And I have my personal Instagram at GM Standle. And as for Greg's Orson Welles. very Wells, attractive, by the way. <laughs> as, as for Orson Welles, I mean, he's obviously genius storyteller. He's a really prolific dude. Um, really impressive life. I didn't know 90% of what we talked about. So it's kind of a shame that, I mean, just really quickly, it seems to me that Hearst just kind of bought off all the studio heads and made sure that he wasn't to be, you know, that's what it sounds like to me. Totally. But I guess we'll never know. <laughs> Absolutely. So. No, they, they bet. Someday we'll have someone we hate like that, you know, hopefully things go out here. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, again, um, it's very cool to, to talk about uh, the greatest filmmaker of all time with, uh, you know, a guy I was making dumb mafia movies with in his driveway in eighth grade. So this is I, I'd cool wager Orson would have liked Career in Crime. He would have got a kick out of it. <laughs> I, I like what you're doing. You have terrible camera angles. <laughs> you don't have a tripod? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hand uh, hey, Tell man, Wells man. to drive by again. <laughs> <laughs> That's an inside joke. Uh, but um, no, uh, LP, any other notes on the way out? No, I think that uh, we belabored the point enough. But All right. Uh, now a quick word from our sponsors. Shit, we don't have any. Um, <laughs> really? Maybe Campbell Soup will pick us up. <laughs> yeah. But no, this was an absolute blast to talk about. We did go long on this one. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope we didn't bore you here because the guy fascinated me. I think he's a prime example of what the show's all about and covering a loser. And just a friendly reminder, this is still free. We just gave you two hours of free content. You might not have a, a commute just yet, but someday you will. Go back through our back catalog. we got a million great episodes out there. And again, McCarthyism. You want to know what it's about? HBO is about to do a documentary where they talk about it a little bit. Everybody keeps mentioning it on Twitter. Maybe it's time you learn about these things, all right? So outsmart your friends and go ahead and check out our Patreon episode at the end of the month. Uh, it's going to be on George McCarthy and McCarthyism, okay? Uh, Senator McCarthy, if you will. And uh, we're going to cover that one in great detail. And all of that, by the way, you still get the free episodes every Tuesday. And for just a minimum of a $5 donation, the large of one cup of coffee from Dunkin' Donuts, uh, we're going to give you a banger of an episode on that one. Just like we had a banger of an episode today, man. Orson's money. 
You might want to check in with Stu, make sure he's all right. That's a Stu, yeah, at least, uh, Stu, if you're going to still be on the elliptical, just turn it down a little bit here, okay? <laughs> and I also want to do one last little shout-out, if I can. Uh, Joe Fernandez does have an album out. Also, the Sunquist family, uh, a musically talented family. New album coming out from them. I'll post it up on our Instagram. But no way. You know it. Uh, the inst- Not Partridge Family. It's like legit rock oh, okay. music, okay? <laughs> But uh, no, it's good stuff. It's uh, it's Carl actually, the very talented music. He sent me a couple of the, the tracks. I I dug them. We might have to use them for some video projects down the road if he'll let me. Um, but that being said, guys, thank you so much to all of our Patreon listeners, all of our regular listeners, at uh, American Loser Podcast on Instagram, American Loser Podcast on Facebook. The official page is up now. We're working on some YouTube content. If you feel like leaving us a review, if you can't afford the five dollars a month, I totally get it. Leave me a written review on iTunes. That shit helps too, all right? Tell your friends about us. Confront somebody, all right? Get in their face. This is the time for activism. Uh, on behalf of my show, please. Uh, but again, from all of us here at American Loser, uh, my name was K.P. Burke, and that was Orson Welles, American Loser. An American Loser the day I was born An American Loser the day I was born An American Loser the day I was born.